Hey, you're listening to Homo Ludens, the podcast on history and board games. Welcome back to another monthly debrief. Uh, in this part one, my co-host, Joe, and I are going to talk about what we've read, watched, and played during this month of September. And then you'll have a second part uh, of this podcast where the Homo Ludens backers will debrief this month's game for Le Club de Jeu, Men of Iron. Hey, Joe, you are now officially co-host. Does it feel different? Uh, yeah, I'm allowed to do things like this, Fred. You, you missed a crucial part of the introduction, which is that ah. this is actually a show about history, games, and film criticism. Oh, that's true, that's true. But th th I, I thought that this goes without saying. Um, and it is also a, a log of your cat's health. And uh, it's it's more than this, I think. It's more than just games and cinema. It's, it's the, full, the full experience. This yeah. show. It's got something for everyone. It's a total it's a total podcast, I would say. Yeah, like yeah you have, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but overall, it was a quiet month month for me. Um, not much gaming, uh, reading, or movie watching. Uh, what were you doing? I was working. It's awful. Uh, I hate it. Sad. Yeah, working was taking a lot of uh, of my energy this month, and it was a short month for some reason. I don't know why. And, and it, does, you... it does feel shorter than a normal month. I agree. It's been about two weeks since we last recorded. This. Yeah, I think so. But when I looked, it's actually it has been more than four weeks. But I don't know what we've done with those four weeks. No. I'm confused. How was your month? Uh, I, I was working quite a lot too, actually, but I managed to play a few things and do a few other things. So that's I've got some some stuff to talk about. What were you working on? Um, I was working on my regular job, uh, and also I had some extra work, so I do some some freelance work as an editor and copywriter. So I had some additional work doing that. But are, are you allowed to talk about the games that you're working on for? Uh, yeah, for I guess I can. Yep. Yeah. So we were very busy this month with some final work for people power yeah. and also for mr president so i've been involved i've been working uh, on the team with jason carr who are doing a lot of final um work on that which should be done very soon as well so okay when is people power going to print i want it in my hands now. Uh, i'm not authorized to uh, say anything about that uh, but it is very nearly finished is all i can say okay because i'm i'm, I'm getting impatient here and i guess that's for it has been yeah it has been out for a while it's just that it's last time i looked at it everything looked almost done and i was like when is it out i was a bit frustrated i'm super excited about this one yeah finally being released. I, I guess to give a little glimpse behind the scenes that the, the frustrating thing about game development and game production is you get to a stage where it pretty much is done but then there's uh, still quite a lengthy process of making sure well getting all the text and everything laid out in the rule books and then proofreading, uh, proofreading that which is a lot of what i do um, yeah. and i think i'm pretty good at it but it just takes a long time and a lot of energy to, to proofread stuff okay and I was wondering, did you did you watch a bit on Twitter? Everyone posting about Essen, and did you get the, a bit of FOMO, or did you you didn't care that much? Um, I I saw it and it looked interesting. I didn't care that much. I have to say, I don't find the idea of these huge game conferences particularly uh, exciting. Um, I think I would find it a bit exhausting and overwhelming. Really, um, I, I might try and attend some smaller conventions at some point in the future i think yeah uh, for me it's a bit of a there is a bit of a contradiction because at in on one hand i'm terrorized by the idea of being with that many people in a in something that looks like a i don't know like looks like nothing it's just a whole way i don't know it's it's <laughs> very it's very dry and everything and there is too many people for me to feel comfortable but at the same time i see all those games and i'm like oh there is this game from yeah. Taiwan about the the, the tulip bubble <laughs> of the 16th century. And sure, sure, sure. That would and be, yeah. So I'm a bit in between those two. It feels like 
there is so many things at Essen that I want to see, but at the same time, I don't want to physically be there. It's, yeah. 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 Um, I'm torn. I'm torn. But that being said, I think it would be great for, for, for you were talking about smaller convention and we started talking about it, mm-hmm. but maybe organizing the fact that we should be at Aircon uh, yeah. the, the next uh, session yeah. would be great. So, so I'm, I'm certainly more interested in attending these smaller, more kind of game playing focused conventions rather than the mm-hmm. kind of industry conventions like Essen, I guess. Yeah. And I did Aircon last year uh, and I thought it was, it was awesome. Uh, earlier this year, I mean, actually, mm-hmm. yeah, it was really early. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 2022. And I think you, I guess you would enjoy it, and I personally really enjoyed it. Like really focused on gaming, you you get the opportunity to meet actually a lot of people, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. it's less commercial. You feel like you're more yeah, engaging exactly. with the community. Maybe yeah. one day we should organize a homolidens convention. A homolidens convention, yeah, that that has been discussed, um, but uh, I think I would hate it. You, <laughs> you might be. Well, maybe yeah. you don't need to attend. I'll, I'll organize it and everyone else can have Yeah, fun. yeah, that, that would be perfect, actually, if it existed without my presence. That would be great. Or maybe, you know, when I feel in a way when you come uh, to London and we spend the day together, for me, that's mm-hmm. a homo dance convention. Okay. <laughs> okay. That, that works for me. Yeah. Good. Should do individual conventions. Anyway, let's start maybe with the, with the reading. Um, oh, unusual, so, different order. Okay. Yeah, is it? I'm not sure. I feel like okay. we always start with the reading, right? And then we talk about what we watch, and then we talk about what we play. I think it's you the... might be right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm 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 consistent in my in my order. What have you What have you read this month? Um, so I finished reading. It, it's hard for me to keep track of which month is which, but I think this month I finished reading uh, Ubik by Philip K. Dick, which mm. I've never read before. It's one of his weirder ones, I have to say. Um, wasn't wasn't super. Uh, compelled by it. I, I have read a lot of Philip K. Dick and it is always pretty weird, but this one was particularly weird and a, a bit of an unusual one. What wasn't what I expected actually, because I've it's it's actually one of the more famous ones. Yeah. That was that was something. That was interesting. <laughs> it's it's um, funny because I just retweeted on Twitter a very stupid joke mm-hmm. of someone taking a picture of what's present in the Nile. Um and uh, and this yeah, makes okay. Ken Fish microwave soup and so and someone comments arguably Philip K. Dick's worst novel. <laughs> so that's yeah. <laughs> which I thought was yep. yeah, stupid and funny, but but related to what you just well, said. Well so I actually thought it was gonna be a better joke than that because uh the the titular Ubik, and this doesn't spoil anything, is um a a kind of household product you might find in, in the shopping aisle. So I thought I thought maybe someone had found um bottle of ubik in the in the store no no it, it wasn't that subtle uh, that, that would have been good yeah. Um, so yeah i also started reading um the will to battle which is the third book in this terra ignota uh series which i think i mentioned before um first one is uh too like the lightning mm. um which i still have extremely mixed feelings about but um is you know very compelling very compelling it's um a bit like that, that detective in Knives Out, you know, um, don't, yeah. don't really understand what's going on. Um, slightly disgusted, but it compels me when I continue reading. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, but it's, you know, it's it's something um, different and interesting. Yeah. Um, it's not, not as clever as it thinks it is. That's that's one of my main my main thoughts. Uh, so that that's the fiction I've been reading, as far as I remember. I've been reading a few more history-themed um, books again, so... Mm. Uh, I've been reading One Hell of a Gamble, which is a book about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but with kind of different perspectives. So it's using some archival stuff from Soviet Union and Cuba. So there's some more Cuban and Soviet interests in there, which is interesting to read. 
Oh, and um, did you feel like it changes your 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 own perspective on the event? Uh, well, it's been useful for me to try and work out what, so particularly what the Soviets were up to is interesting. And yeah. I have, um, I mean, this kind of also relates to games, I guess, thinking about like what 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 a game about this period might might be like. And people think of the missile crisis as well. Some some people think of it as you know a big success story for Kennedy. You know, he made the Soviets uh, step down and turn away and all this. Which is true in a sense, but I actually think, to to a large extent, the Soviets got what they wanted because they they got a concession about about missiles being withdrawn from Turkey and Italy and so on, and they they never really cared about Cuba as such. I don't think it was yeah. it was more a tool to get something, and I think possibly they they got what they wanted there. And in a way, it was a way to prove a point, I guess, yeah, exactly. and and show uh, some level of hypocrisy of um, yeah. of the position for on yeah. international politics from speaking from the about. US. The hypocrisy, there's a really funny bit where, you know, Kennedy's got all of his top advisors and having a chat or something and he says, Yeah, God damn it, this would be this would be like if we position missiles in Turkey. <laughs> and I think, you know, one of his advisors leans over and says, Sir, we, we do have missiles in Kennedy and he says, Oh, that's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean he he um the, the interesting about Kennedy is he had secret tape recorders going for all of these meetings. Um yeah, uh, include, including so he would leave them running when he left the room. So he has all there's all these tape recordings of all the like generals and stuff saying uh, that Kennedy's a real idiot and um, this mm. kind of stuff. But wasn't it the same for for Nixon where like he That's taped right, yeah. everything? Yep. Yeah, yeah. And and you and there was some pretty wild things that were discussed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's I mean it's it's fairly remarkable that we had these tapes. I think. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, still, I guess, speaking about different perspectives, I've been reading a new book called Afghan Crucible about the Soviet-Afghan war by Elizabeth Leake, which, mm. um, again, tries to focus more, so less on the on the war as such, although that's obviously covered, but on the, the different kind of roles and interests of different segments of Afghan society, um, which I, I'm only a little way into, but is also very interesting. And do you feel like maybe the, the games that you're working on are shaping the, the history books that you're reading? Because I know that you're working on Bear Trap, and I'm thinking, well, if you're reading this about the Soviet Afghan war, was this inspired by, or do you feel like you need it? No, they, they often do. So I, I, I try to read a few books on every game I'm working on just to make sure I kind of have some understanding and out of personal interest. So that's, that, that's part of what's going on with some of these mm. books, for sure. Yep. And how is Bear Trap going along? Uh, fine. Um, actually, Paul, the designer, will be uh, demoing it at the Weekend of a Warehouse GMT event oh, next cool. uh, next weekend. So if anyone's going along, uh, say hi to Paul and give the game a go. Um, it's it's yeah, very nice, very good stage of development, I think, now. Yeah, and if Paul ever watch, listens to this podcast, I, I need to publicly apologize. I've been talking with him for months about <laughs> having him on the show. And yeah, uh, things came in the way and everything. And I had this idea about doing a full teach and play, then just do an interview. Then I realized that he already did some really interesting interviews really recently mm -hmm. on, on Artwolf's Lair and everything. And I was like, well, what do I have to offer on top of this? So yeah, I guess one day he'll come on the show. It's just that I don't know how mm -hmm. to bring him in to do something a bit different. Uh, I'm not sure. Sometimes I feel... Uh, overwhelmed by my own ability to organize stuff <laughs> Just... well you do lots of good interviews i mean there's nothing wrong with having more, more than one interview i think either but yeah but it, it was done pretty recently and it was a good yep. interview so i think that just so close it's probably not really worth it um mm. but yeah i have to to think of something but maybe or maybe later down the line when when we'll have more final artwork i'm not sure we'll see mm -hmm. we'll see
Okay. Uh, what have you been reading? And don't don't go on too long, Fred, because we're trying to keep the show shorter today. Yeah, sure. Uh, but I have only read one book. Uh, I started reading some books, but I'm too f- haven't read enough to actually talk about them. The only thing that I read, and you're gonna make fun of me, uh, because it's a very short book. Um, uh, Manuel du Guerriero Urbain. So in English, that would be uh, the Manual of for Urban Guerrilla mm-hmm. uh, by Carlos Marighella. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm really interested in reading that actually. Yeah. And I had this book for a long time, um, but I've never read it. It was just there uh, mm-hmm. in my uh, in my bookshelf. A uh, very small book. But uh, after we played some of um, Stephen's uh, newer prototypes, it uh, without saying too much, uh, I would say that it compelled. Yeah, that already me to, says quite a lot, but yeah, yes, it compelled me to actually uh, read the book finally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I read it, and the edition that I have is quite nice because there is also a super interesting introduction that puts the manual into context when it was released, who was Carlos Marighella, his relationship with the Communist Party of Brazil and everything. So mm-hmm. it's it was an interesting read, a short read, but really interesting. And just for, for our listeners, uh, Carlos Marighella was a Brazilian revolutionary uh, who, who fought against the military dictatorship um, uh, of Brazil during the 60s. And he wrote this book, the sort of a field manual uh, in, in 69, about how to wage guerrilla warfare in urban settings a bit as a something that would complement a focal theory so what would happen on the on the countryside and and i really found it quite fascinating because it's a very practical book it's concise gives a lot of really tangible perspective of what you should do when you're uh, doing urban guerrilla and how to do it and it specifies also each type of action that you can take and how to make it and everything. And in a way, it feels almost like reading a detailed uh, coin play raid mm-hmm. like, of your faction. And I think it's it's really interesting. And there are some really concrete stuff about what are the best weapon, how to optimize the fact that you have most of your weapons of the same caliber, because then it's easier to have mm-hmm. ammunition for it and everything. It's really, it's, it's really, really interesting. And there is a bit at the end that I thought was also... A very like a something that pretty unusual like he lists the seven potential mistakes that you can mm-hmm. make as a urban guerrilla uh, fighter and it shows the distance that maybe Marigella had towards what he was doing how lucid he was mm-hmm. uh, about the limits of also of, yeah, of, of guerrilla warfare like he's definitely uh, a revolutionary and he thought that it was important and he was really serious about it but he didn't think that it would solve everything and it was actually quite a, quite an interesting uh, very interesting book um, for, for any of our listeners who are planning uh, an urban guerrilla action what, what's the number one mistake they should avoid so what's the number one mistake you should avoid so there is something that is interesting about the mistake that you should avoid because he's really for him it's really important this is um that you shouldn't forget about a countryside guerrilla and think that urban guerrilla is going to do everything that actually maybe countryside guerrilla is just a support for urban guerrilla, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure. So if one of our listeners is planning on guerrilla warfare, it really depends on how rural your country still is, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not sure if that works. But maybe something a bit more practical uh, that every may- maybe should keep in mind is that you shouldn't... So what's the word for Vantardis? Boast? You know, talk a lot about what you do, being very proud and, you yep. know... Yeah. yeah. So that's one of his key things that he said you shouldn't do. Like, if you do guerrilla warfare, shut up about it. <laughs> Which? So I, I think that would go for not not just warfare, but any any kind of subversive action you might be taking is uh, don't don't talk so much about it. I think. It's, yeah, probably. People take, particularly in this day and age with, you know, lots of lots of social media and on, online access and so on. You need to be careful. 
And I, I think that's probably something that that can be still yeah exactly useful today. So that's maybe the one that I would uh, that I would mention. But yeah, super interesting book. And if you manage to find an edition where you have someone that provides some historical context and explain when it was written and why and everything, and giving you a bit more insights on who uh, Carlos Marighella is, I would recommend it because just as is, it, it can feel a bit dry. But once you understand w when and why it was written, it, it gives it uh, that extra flavor, uh, which I think was great. And that's the only book that I fully read. And so you see, I, I was pretty fast. I was pretty fast. So we can we can go into the into the watching section. And you told me earlier this month that there was something that I needed to remind you when we're going to talk about the the movies. Yep. And you told me remind me this Rutger Hauer rats movie. And I was yep. like, that seems very cryptic. <laughs> but so I just wrote down those four words, put it on a piece of paper, and it's just in front of me, and and I'm reading it now. I have no idea what you're going to talk about. So, so if we were doing a live recording, this is when I'd pause and maybe ask the audience if anyone uh, can tell what what this film is from from just that clue. Rutger Hauer, Rats, maybe. Um, but it is, uh, yeah. They can take a pause now, think about it, yep. uh, send us an email to see what they think it is and then resume the listening of this podcast. Yeah, exactly. So it's a little uh, personal contest there. Don't don't fool yourself. Pause and try and guess. So the film is a 1992 cult classic, Split Second, starring Rutger Hauer, uh, and it is set um, in London, um, a, a near-future London, probably the year 2000 or something, I think it says. And uh, because of global warming and uh, you know things like this, there's now terrible weather events, and the whole city's flooded so there's, there's lots of water everywhere all the subways are flooded and there's obviously a plague of rats as well nice um and Rutger Hauer is uh, uh you know a kind of down on his luck cop um and he's gone rogue a little bit this kind of stuff and he's gone rogue particularly because his partner got killed by some kind of horrible monster um some some months or years earlier and he's he's trying to track it down and find it and it's basically just about Rutger Hauer going around flooded London chased by you know the younger do do everything by the books cop who's working with him uh trying to find this um this murderer and it, it got terrible reviews at the time and there's lots of it's bad about it but there's some really good acting from a number of uh top top actors such as rock Hauer. uh other top actors like kim cattrall who i forgot is samantha from sex of the city yeah uh, pete Postlethwaite, who's a classic british actor very good alan armstrong another classic british actor uh, ian dury um not a classic british actor but instead a, a very good uh, British musician um, but uh, ended up in this film somehow and it's it, it's great it's a kind of uh, you know like cyberpunk film noir kind of kind of vibe it's yeah it's got some some really nice kind of silly bits going on pulls out a big gun and shoots rats with it things like this but the Rutger Hauer, Rutger Hauer character um, is actually you know you you look at the the start the film and so on you think he's gonna be really macho he's actually extremely vulnerable and the film really is about this this kind of broken man who's really sad about his dead uh partner and so on um and tr trying to deal with with all of this kind of trauma basically um so so actually some really interesting acting from him there i think and i i won't spoil anything else but it's it's an interesting film i'd highly recommend watching it that's the kind of thing you're into and the title of the film is split second, uh, split second but yeah the title, the original title of the script was Pentagram. That's okay. That's a slightly better title. Yeah. The um, original title of the film was going to be Black Tide, which I think is a much better title than either of those. So in my in my heart, the film was called Black Tide because Black yeah, Tide that, is just a nonsense. Yeah, that's an awesome title. Yeah, they yeah. should have called it this. Yeah, they should absolutely call it Black Tide. Um, 
So and actually, you know what? We probably should at one point do a Rutger Hauer uh, special episode mm -hmm. just to talk about him. And in a way, there is a connection with our intro because Rutger Hauer, like mostly mostly known for featuring in Blade Runner, inspired by Philip K. Dick, everything yep. is connected here. Yes, yeah, so everything uh, is connected, which would uh, really vibe with Philip K. Dick, I think. Um, yes. he, would, he would start getting a little bit worried about that. Yeah, probably. Anyway, and he also, there is, he did this amazing movie that I would like to watch again about medieval warfare called Flesh and Blood. And it could be actually nice to maybe a month where we played some Levian campaign games. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe when Inferno is released or something like this, we could have a moment where we also talk only about uh, Rutger Hauer's filmography and focus on Flesh and Blood, which is a really cool movie. But I will watch Split Second. You actually got me interested um, in it. And I like movies that are considered to be bad, especially from the 90s, because uh, because that, that reminds me of the good times when I was watching bad movies on VHS uh, on Sunday mornings. Exactly. So um, it, it, it definitely feels more like a kind of late 80s film than a, than a 90s film, if that makes sense. But Which is a, even in a good way. Yeah. Even better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would put it in a similar category. Have you seen Strange Days? Oh yes, yes, I've seen Strange Days. Yeah, yeah, that's actually. Uh, but that's actually. Wait a minute, Strange Days is actually a pretty good movie. I, I really like Strange Days, but again, lots of people didn't like it, and it's got that quite kind of um, pulpy, proper kind of kind of cyberpunky foss to it. Yeah, um, it does. Like, but yeah. I th it, once again, really great act acting. Yeah. The story is interesting, and and I think that so it's it's Catherine Bigelow who did that movie, if I remember correctly. Oh, did she? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, and she's. For me, she has something about. I love her action movies. She did yeah. Point Break oh. also, which I think is like is amazing, and especially those one from the '90s. I think she managed to do those movies that look like other movies, but she always has something different in a way of approaching it. Like Point Break, yeah, for example. Yep. Yep. You think it's like oh, it's one of those classic nine, late '90s gangster movie and everything, but there is something about the relationship between all those characters and everything that is. I think it's always unique to to her and to the way she films action is very different. And mm -hmm. I don't know, I, there is always something in her movies that I like. So, yeah. yeah. Speaking of Strange Days, I bought myself a new Doors t-shirt yesterday because all of my current Doors t-shirts have worn out. So there's some news for everyone who's listening. Yeah, no that's one, good. Probably that's no good one knows this, but I'm a, a, a very big Doors fan. I saw the surviving members of the Doors in concert um, when I was a teenager, which obviously lacks Jim Morrison, but had a they had a stand-in Jim Morrison who was who was very good, very compelling. You remember I told you when we were finishing Red Flag over Paris that at some point we needed to go to Paris together and I would give yes. you a tour and show you different and you know at some point we'll have to see the Mur des Fédérés in Père Lachaise and we can stop by the uh, Jim Morrison. That, uh, that would tour. be my, my number one reason for coming to Paris. Yes. So we can but I'm trying to convince you that I, I won't I will bore you with the commune related okay. stuff, but I will find stuff for you also for you to enjoy. So. Uh, now before we move on I have one question about flesh and blood because I'm just looking it up now. Um yeah. it's the, the title stylized as Flesh Plus Blood. Is it is it in the same series as Romeo Plus Juliet, the, the battle? Uh, no, no, definitely not. Definitely a different vibe. Would, <laughs> so would it be a good double bill, though? Because they're both in Italy as well, right? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, it is. Uh, and in a way, yeah, we, we could do a combo. <laughs> I don't know when. The, Maybe when. we can do a screening of Flesh Plus Blood and Romeo Plus Juliet at the first Homo Ludens convention. Yes, but it's. I would say it's different vibes. It's pretty different vibes. Yeah, but that's what you want from a double bill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, but yeah, we could do that. But I think it's it's probably one of the most interesting movies about uh, medieval warfare I think that I've ever seen. It's not that it's super historical in a sense because it takes a general setting. Like it's not 
but what it says about the character and everything, I don't know. And there is a Berserk vibe to it also. I don't know if you've read Berserk. Uh, no, but uh, I keep meaning to because you, you always go on about it. So. And and like about w- what it is to be a mercenary uh, in a in a in a country with people who have too much money and and mm-hmm. too much thirst for power. I, I don't know. There is something pretty. That amazing sounds pretty similar there. to Romeo plus Juliet to me. The first yes, yes, it does. Uh, yeah, yeah. Backdrop, yeah. the bloody backdrop. Yeah, yeah. The, maybe the backdrop is the same. It's just that the characters are slightly different. Okay. But, um, yeah. but yeah. We can we can talk about it if you do that specific uh, specific months. I think the when Inferno gets released, that would be a good a good moment to do this. Mm-hmm. Any anything else that you watched? Uh, there's a film I watched which will prompt you to go into film criticism, so I might avoid mentioning it. Um, we've also been watching a new Korean TV show, as always, uh, which is ah. EP, which is actually pretty cool. Um, so this is actually one of the made for Netflix ones, which has the advantage of slightly saner episode times. So mm. each episode is under an hour which, you know, made for Korean TV shows are an hour and 20 minutes each episode, and it's just too much sometimes. Oh, that's too um, So that, that's how you can tell, by the way. If you're watching a Korean TV show and the episodes are under an hour and they don't blur out the knives, that means it was made for Netflix, not for Korean mm. TV. So this one's called DP, and DP is the name of the, the units of the army, uh, so the conscript army, who um, are, well, people doing their military service. These are the soldiers who go out to catch people who have deserted, which is a very mm. common thing because everybody in Korea serves, well, every man serves for two years in the army. And the interesting thing about these soldiers, though, is they are also just doing their service. So basically they, they pick some, or at least the way the show depicts it, they pick some, you know, some of the uh, people doing the service who basically might be better cops than they are soldiers, pretty much, and then sends them out undercover to go and get the... The, the soldiers who have fled um but like all good korean tv it's it's actually very critical of the whole institution of the army and the military service and so on so it's really more about the you know the fact that um all of these guys running away from the army have good reasons to do so and it's just quite awful serving uh, the military service there's lots of abuse in the army and all this kind of stuff interesting i like the topic uh, i will that maybe that's the maybe that's the tv show that could get me into it we'll see. I, I still think vincenzo is the one that could get you into it but you think so yeah yeah okay I'll work on it. I'll work on it. It should be a quarter amount, so maybe that would be a good time to to do that. Oh yeah, we we've also been watching. I can't remember the name of it now. Actually, we've been watching this uh, Japanese show that's on Netflix, which is this one where there's these seven minute episodes where two or three year olds are sent off on their first. Uh, oh yeah, I love this. They have to, you know, they have to go to the shop and buy some buy some sushi or something, uh, and they have little camera crews chasing them around and so on. So very, Julia, very... Julia is obsessed by this show. So as soon as it was released on Netflix, I think we binge watched all of it. <laughs> so, I, so I'm that... trying to I'm trying to ration it a little bit because it's nice. So so we often watch these very heavy Korean shows. So it's nice yeah. to have like you know a little seven minute cooldown of one of these one of these cute little ones. Although it's quite traumatic sometimes when there's a little two year old saying, "I don't want to go to the shop. Ah, don't make me." It's uh, yeah, it can be pretty heavy. And I don't remember the 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 name of the show. I'm looking on it. I'm looking at it right now. So Japanese kids errands show Netflix. And on uh, Netflix, there's only about twenty episodes. Yeah, old they're enough. all different years, old enough. So I think they've picked the best of old enough. And I think there's probably hundreds if you go and watch it on on Japanese TV. On Japanese TV, yeah, but it's a great show. I love it because in a way, it shows a lot of cool stuff about day to day life in Japan, which is cool. Yeah, it, and it there is, is so each each one's in a different town, and it will give you like a little. Bit bit of backdrop like you know this is a nice rural town and you know wherever and um, this is what we do here so yeah it's nice yeah, yeah and, I, and i find it really fascinating and uh, yeah and sometimes the parents are doing really cool jobs so, and, yeah and, yeah it's it's actually really fun to really fun to watch and as you say 
those are sometimes epic adventures with yeah. it's a roller coaster of emotions and and yeah, yeah. it's it's, it's, it's pretty... also it's it's nice as well they they show you the parents when the kids are going out and often yeah. they start crying and they're, they're yeah exactly it's, well. it, it's sometimes it's harder for them yeah. than for yeah. the kids in a way because they forget two two minutes after that they were sad about something yeah exactly so so yeah that's that's pretty cool it's a really great show i love it uh what what you watched then Fred? so I didn't watch that many things. Uh, there was something that I, it was a bit of a guilty pleasure, but I, I rewatched uh, Winding Reference uh, Drive, mm-hmm. but I don't have much to say about it. It's just I, I wanted to rewatch it just for, sometimes you want to watch a movie that you've already watched a few times just for, for comfort. And oh, I came out of it realizing it was still a great movie. I was uh, still in love with Ryan Gosling and, and that was pretty much it. So I didn't have much more to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if someone hasn't watched it, they should. They should. But I mostly focused. I think I didn't watch a lot of movies. But what I would try to watch was movies by Jean Luc Godard because he passed away uh, yeah. midway last month. So I think around the 13th of uh, September. I think if I remember well. And I didn't know really what to watch because I I used to I watched a few of his movies when I was a lot younger. Some of them I liked. Some of them I really didn't like. And I had a like a I don't know a weird relationship with 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 his movies. Like, I don't, I didn't really like his stories and everything. And I thought it was a bit pompous, and it was hard for me. So, but I thought, well, you're a bit older now. Maybe the theme will talk to you a bit more, and that would be a good time to get back into it. So, I actually ended up watching three of his movies. I watched one of his earliest ones, so Pierrot le Fou, which was released in '65. So that was really early in his career. Then I watched one of his more modern stuff, so a, a short movie that he he did in 1993. Um, it's a it's a short film, two minutes, uh, called Je vous salue Sarajevo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, I watched his final movie, uh, Le Livre d'Image, that was released in 2018. And actually, I was happy I did. In some ways, it comforted me in some of the thought that I had when I was younger. But I also realized that. He was more than what I what I thought he was from the very limited perspective that I had uh, when I started watching his movies, and I would say that that probably I better understand what he was, why he's such a a cult or recognized um, uh, film director, but also I understood that he maybe I don't like his stories that much, but actually the strength of Jean Jean Luc Godard is not really the stories that he tells, but more the way he tells them, mm-hmm. and it was really interesting. So. So the first one, Pierrot le Fou, so it's it's a classic one. So it's one of his like you have an actual story and everything. Like it's it's his more classic movies from the new wave. Uh, and I was amazed by even though I wasn't really in love with the story and everything, I was still pretty amazed by how modern it felt. The and the freedom that you felt in the way he's telling the story, how he plays with sounds, how he plays with image, and there is like a it's a really powerful movie in like a, as an object and you realize that he could do things that even today feel like like almost no uh director would would feel comfortable doing like he's he's yeah he, a, a weird mix of sometimes you have voiceover and music and and just still images uh and then all of a sudden you have an action scene and the colors are amazing and i don't know there there is really something uh pretty impressive about it not in love with it but i really when I saw it, I was like, whoa, if I saw this in 65, I think I would be completely mind blown by mm-hmm. how modern it is. Because for me in 2022, it still felt like it was pretty modern and stuff that I haven't seen before. So that was that was really impressive. 
But then the thing that really shifted me is when I started watching his more modern stuff. So the the short movie, Je vous salue Sarajevo, it was a massive slap in the face. It's only two minutes, but I would recommend anyone watching it. I think you can find it pretty easily online mm -hmm. with subtitles. I found it with subtitles in Spanish, subtitles in English. So you can find it. Uh, and basically, it's just two minutes. And there is a single image in the whole movie. It's a still photograph. But through the magic of editing, and I think that was really Godard's power, is that for him, like the whole movie could be only editing. You didn't need to create an image, to create new images to make a movie. And I think you really see it in, already in this in this one. It's a good entry point into that idea. And it's just, yeah, two minutes. You just have a mix of text, images, uh, and that picture that you see in, a, in different angles or different bits. And it tells a story the more it gets revealed over the course of two minutes. And it was really amazing. And it was a good introduction to seeing his last movie uh, that was released in, in, in 2018, which I would not recommend. Uh, not because it's a bad movie. I think it's an excellent movie. It's just that it's maybe not even a, a movie in a classic sense. It is a really beautiful and, and very completely unique object. Uh, and this one is like uh, an hour and 40 minutes or something like this, but there is no, like, he didn't film anything. It's everything is a an assemblage of a lot of different things that he that he took from classic cinema, uh, bits of videos that he found. Like, and he created this this object that is very weird, but has its own internal logic. In dividing in five parts, like the five figures of the hand, the hand that creates artistical object, and it's you have a lot of reflection about what is art, what does it say about a, mm -hmm. um, a civilization. But then in the middle of it, you have ten minutes where he talks about his loves for train, which I, which I felt very connected to because yeah. I love trains. And in the middle of something very philosophical and everything, you have something that is almost childlike about mm -hmm. fascination for the object of the train. And you actually even have a video of just a, a video that I think he took from YouTube or something like this, of just a child seeing a train and being excited about it. And you're like, and you can really relate to it. It's very, it's a very beautiful uh, movie, but very weird. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So maybe if you try to watch a few Godard movies and you are interested in in what he tries to do and the artist as a whole, maybe maybe go for it. But uh, but I would only keep it for if you really get into it. But je vous salue Sarajevo. Yeah, mm -hmm, uh, definitely. Uh, okay. Super, super amazing. Maybe you should link to it in the comments uh, at some point. Yeah, yeah, I will. I will probably do this. And I was. It was weird because, in a way, he was making movies as, uh, like he really had this idea of sampling a lot. Like he was mm -hmm. not doing the tournament, like uh, like the situation is like, he's literally sampling and using bits of things to mm -hmm. do something else. And I was actually starting to work on a rap playlist for you. Yep. Uh, and I was actually thinking that in a way, there was a lot of connection between what he was doing and some of the um, music producers that I, that I love that were doing more yep. old school rap instrumentals uh, using samples and everything. And I thought that was like a sort of, connection here that i didn't yep. expect but then I, I thought about it while, while watching what he was doing i actually while i was working while i was in the depth of mr edit mr president editing uh last week i started listening to uh dead prez uh who i haven't listened yeah. to that much before uh just because the name kept coming into my mind as i went slowly mad working on mr president so uh i think i would yeah first two albums which were great really good that's good that's that's good information for me to see that that that's the kind of thing that you that you aim towards but yeah. i don't know um I, also, I need to finish that playlist by the way oh uh, you, you should yeah um yeah. but you, you're talking about 
those films made me think of a film I watched yesterday, actually, at the ah. Gallery of Modern Art here in Glasgow, which is uh, a film by uh, Swiss artists Fischli and Weiss uh, called The Way Things Go, mm-hmm. um, or something different in German. Um, and it's it's extremely compelling. It's half an hour long. We stood there watching most of it, I think, just in the gallery. And it's kind of like one of these, uh, you know, when people set up these like overly elaborate things where, you know, one thing knocks into another thing and rolls something yeah. down and then it does this and so on. Um, but they use lots of like chemical reactions in it as well, and also fire and explosives. So like, oh, that's awesome. you know, a bottle will tip over, and then some things will bubble over, and then that will, you know, lift something else up, and then that will set fire to something else, and it just keeps going on. Uh, and it's yeah, extremely compelling to watch. Um, so I'm actually I was trying to find a video of it, but I think there's only shorter clips available online. Um, oh yeah, but, so yeah maybe you, something you get an opportunity you can... to see it sometime in a gallery or whatever. It's very good. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. It's probably something that you can either see on a festival or in a gallery, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. But it was, yeah, just really kind of entrancing to watch. And it actually kind of reminded me of what you were saying about the trains, because there's almost like a childlike wonder of just watching it and, you know, watching one thing hit into another thing and do another thing and so mm. on. Um, and, and, and every time something would catch fire, everyone everyone watching would, would cheer a little bit. They'd be like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like when there is this uh, emotional reaction that you can sense in the in the room. Uh, yeah. I think yeah, it's something it that, exactly. that I love about going watching movies in, in the cinema. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, there's even some really fun bits where it will, you know, it will set fire to like a little a little rocket, which has got a knife attached to the front. And then that will fly over and like hit into a balloon, which will burst and this kind of stuff. It's just, yeah, very fun. That sounds really epic. Uh, I will try to see if I can find a a way to watch it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll get lucky in London at some point. Yep, I expect you could find it in London somewhere. So 40 minutes in, uh, maybe we should start playing about, uh, talking about stuff that we played. Yeah, well, I don't think either of us have played too much, so that's okay. Um, yeah, I, I played one one big game, uh, which is Here I Stand, which I've never played before. We mm. finally got a group together to start playing that. Fred was meant to be playing with us, but he's too boring, so decided not to. Yeah. Um, and we've only played first three turns, but I, I really loved it. It's really, really fun, really interesting. Um, I mean, I, I, I knew it would be good because it's obviously got a great, a great reputation, but I didn't, you know, some of these good games, I can see it good, but don't necessarily excite me. But this one, uh, each turn was really exciting. Uh, there's lots of interesting scheming going on. Um, and it really, to me, feels like it scratches the same kind of itch as Diplomacy, which I played a lot when I was younger, except with a bit more of a, a robust rule set to actually kind of manage things, make things more, more interesting in some respects. It's interesting that you're talking about this because there was someone on the Omoludens Discord server that gave me a really interesting suggestion. And if it works, I would like you to be on. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if you know, I think that it was like around 10 years ago, shut up and sit down, tried to do a review of Virgin Queen. And this video became pretty emblematic within the war game community because they basically say, we cannot play this game. It was too long. It was too confusing. We didn't make sense of the rules. It was painful. And we have experience with really heavy games, but this was just completely beyond us. It's not so. I mean, I haven't played Virgin Queen, but Hero Sounds not very complicated. But that's the thing, and and that's the thing that people reacted that for a lot of war gamers, it doesn't seem that complex, and for them that on playing games on a regular basis, it was overwhelming. And there was this discourse around maybe there is something that we should be a bit more careful about. And there were a lot more discussions about how what can the playbook do in the future and everything. So it created a lot of interesting discussion. But mm. there was someone who suggested we're pretty good. What if 
uh, we invited uh, mm -hmm. the the people from Shut Up and Sit Down to do actually a live stream and and, and go through a teach and play of, of Virgin Queen and finally being able to play the game. That would um, be very funny. So, yeah. so that would be really funny and that would be great if you're up for it. That would be awesome yeah. if you could be if you could be there. The, this thing about the difficulty and complexity of games is is, is interesting because I don't think it's just that war games have got bad bad playbooks or bad rules or something because you know i i don't even read the examples to play in playbooks i just read the rules and work out to play them whereas you know the kind of heavy euro games that some people enjoy i i find much harder to learn and play really um so yeah i, I don't know it's interesting i oh i've been me and um peter evans have and uh corey's been helping as well have been playing through some of the games from the game jam the console yeah. game jam um just to kind of See, see what's going on with some of them and give some more feedback to the designers so i've been playing a few of those last week uh and i was i was really impressed with all, all of them i've seen um really high high quality really high high level of design work just done in a weekend and and lots of those teams are continuing to work on the games and i'm yeah. really excited to see how some of them continue to to develop actually yeah, me too. I'm curious. And 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 this time around, it was interesting because I had some discussions and I realized that there were more publishers that were interested than just GMT for the last time. Like I've had some discussion. I'm not saying any names and everything, but I know that there are a few different publishers that are interested in different games. Okay. And it might be the case that for Consume Game Jam 2, even if we said that the objective was not to have published game in the end, we might have maybe more than for the first one and from different publishers. So that would be a really interesting outcome. Any any one that you want to mention specifically um, that really struck you as? Yeah, let me think. Uh, you talked about Third Republic a lot. Yeah, so I played Third Republic um, just on Friday with Peter. That's actually just a two-player game um, about the Czechoslovak Republic after World War II, so from 1946 to 48, I think, roughly. Uh, so it's basically the period leading up to the communist coup and takeover. Um, and I, so that one I thought would be a little dry when I first was hearing the teach, but there's actually some extremely clever stuff going into it. So it takes just about half an hour to play pretty quick, just, just three rounds where you're, you're competing to control various different kind of areas of government. But at the same time, you're also hiding some cards for scoring at the end. And mm. of course, that's a lost opportunity to use the card to influence the control of the government. And then there's this really exciting final round, which we were talking about with the designers, like kind of simulates the coup or the kind of tension right at the end there, where you're drawing, so, so you shuffle together all those scoring cards and you're drawing one at a time. And if you meet the conditions, which is, you know, controlling various parts of the government, you, you score some points on that card. If you don't, you get to shift one of the one of the values slightly on the control cards. And then the next one's drawn and you see if, if someone scored that. So there's this really exciting final bit where you don't know exactly what order these cards are going to come out in whether you know something might tip over the edge so you don't score the big card you were trying to score and yeah yeah really nice game really already really neat and kind of well well put together um it doesn't really need much work at all i wouldn't say sounds super interesting uh, i haven't played this one actually so i would put it on top of my list of the uh, future game that i wanted to try from from that edition it's it's, it's an interesting game because it's it's almost you know the rules and the, and the mechanics are almost abstract um so there's some names on the cards and so on uh but then it nonetheless does a really good job of evoking this theme of, of, a, of a slow scheming over control of the government and then this very final quick round where everything kind of comes to a head so yeah, yeah very nice i think it could be nice to have a maybe a debrief podcast not a in a in a monthly uh not in the monthly format but just uh having a few people that took part in the in the consume game jam uh in, our, in the organizing side and you also if, if you've played the game and everything and just talk about uh, how it all went and what we we think about uh about this edition too that could be really interesting Cool. Anything else? 
that you played? Uh, I, that's all I can remember. Yeah, there is uh, something else that we played, Joe. We, we, we played, played Star Wars Rebellion. Oh yeah, we did. We did. Uh, how how did you find that? I, I talked that to you, and we played it over two sessions. Uh, yeah, I was yeah. really happy that you that, that you took the time to to teach it to me. That was really nice uh, because I've been wishing to play it for a very very long time. Uh, and and yeah, but I didn't want to get the box because it's too big. I wasn't sure I would like it, and I was too lazy to read the rules. So <laughs> all the classic. So you taking the time to show me the game was really really nice, and I loved it. Uh, I thought it was a really interesting way of depicting insurgency warfare. Um, it did something that I really liked that I, that I've been thinking about for a while around um, like giving specific orders to specific people. And I like this idea of combining like the uh, having like people as assets within your court and, and using them for doing different things. I thought that was, that was really interesting. And then the kind of stuff that you do and the asymmetry between the two factions thought, I thought that was great. I know that there were some criticism around the fighting system, which I don't really understand. I thought the fighting system was fine uh, yep, and actually interesting enough. And if you manage your fights pretty well and have like a good general or make sure that you prepare one to have here, it's actually not that, I don't know. I thought it was really okay. I didn't want it more or didn't want less uh, on that on that fight because it's not it's not a fighting, like a battle game. Like it's, no, exactly. it's more about stuff around it. I thought it was great. And I mean, I wanted to play it again. Uh, and, and I actually think that I would like to have it in my collection, potentially. I, it's not really a rush because I, unless if I know it's going to go out of print because of licensing issue, I would take a copy just in case. But as long as it's in print, I would keep an eye on it. But I... If I ever get to a point where I have someone that I see in my surrounding that I would play regularly with, I would be happy to take it uh, because it's uh, it's a great game. So I really enjoyed uh, that, and it also made me think as a designer about how to to play with asymmetry in game. I think that was yeah, I I loved it. Super interesting design, and um, and I find it interesting that Volko likes it so much uh, because yeah. it does things slightly differently from from his own approach but there are a lot of things that are also kind of similar but in a different way um, That's right. yeah. and and, and yeah, i think it's it's a, uh, i think it it's a really really good design super interesting game and it's also beyond that i think it's a uh, it's excellent at uh delivering on its theme uh, yeah 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 absolutely so i i feel similarly about it to Wolverine, and I think it's um, yeah, exactly. you know, it's it's a small miracle that both these games are just so perfect at doing what they do. You know, they yeah. set out to capture the kind of the whole feel of of, of these sagas and just do it uh, so well that you know it's they're they're long but not too long. Uh, they've got everything you want in there. Uh, just great, you know, fairly simple rule sets. Really brilliant games. It's it's really amazing, and it's interesting that you make that comparison with War of the Rings because it's also a game that is brilliant at delivering on its theme. And I think it's yeah, I don't know how. Those designers were like touched by grace when they yeah, did this. Absolutely. I think uh, super impressive. So yeah, we did play that, and then on my own, I played some Men of Iron, obviously, because that was the the game of the month for the club de jeu. But uh, it would be more discussed in the second part of that podcast. And then oh, there was something that I played that I think you will like, and I want to play with you, uh, Dimacker. Mm. Um, so yep. the game about German politics, that Euro game. And for me, it's a, it's a really excellent game uh, as a game, but also because it exemplifies something that I that I think is really interesting about German games, German style of game, in the sense that it is an amazing game. It's about politics, but it uses politics only as an aesthetic, 
and mm-hmm. ultimately ultimately doesn't say anything about politics mm-hmm. <laughs> in a, so it, there is a real di- divorce between the theme and the game uh, which i think is quite interesting especially talking um, after talking about star wars rebellion and wars of the ring it's really those german games they are really interesting systems they give you interesting decisions about optimizing your moves and everything this one is a bit more uh, for me more interesting than the classic dry euro game because there is some variability in in the way it plays there is a bit of randomness and all this so that's that's pretty fun but ultimately when you look at it and, and you think about modern politics you say this game says nothing about it mm-hmm. but it does have all the elements so it makes it fun it makes it easy to grasp and everything but uh, yeah it's not really a political game at all you have absolutely no negotiation between the players the political stance like which party you're playing has absolutely no impact on what you're doing on the game so you can be far right or far left you basically do exactly the same things and it's uh, it's quite funny in the, in that way but that, but that could almost be a statement in itself it could be a statement in itself but i don't think it's a conscious statement and i'm not sure it would be a fair one uh because i don't think that like for example you have this system of donation within the game uh-huh. and i and i don't i don't i don't think that the uh cdu uh will get the same kind of funding from private companies from then d-link just because <laughs> that, that seems correct i think yeah yes and, right. and, and, and i think at some point it cannot be like if you want to really say something about politics i think that's that's such like if it's your point it's not a really good point <laughs> like yeah. that's just yeah. what i wanted to say uh but no, it just uses politics as an aesthetics, not as a not, not taking the not taking the theme for what it is, which is very German uh, yeah. style of uh, of uh, approaching the of approaching games, I think. But still, fascinating game. I expected it to be way harder than what I thought, uh, way more complex because it has this reputation. But actually, the 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 edition that we played that was from Spielworks, uh, so the latest one, is both beautiful, extremely functional, and it was actually quite easy to play once you wrapped up how your head around how an action works mm-hmm. playing it was very easy and and i love it i would want to have it but i would say it's definitely not a game about politics it's just mm-hmm. uh but it's still a great game um so yeah quite in quite interesting and i think you would enjoy it but you will see that it's there is this your gamey yeah. Yeah. thing about it at its core that's that's yeah you know what that's the discussion that we had about Terra Mystica. It's like it's a it's a very boring game in a very smart way. You do you do have some of this, but it's um. But I it's, hope uh, it's less boring than. than it's Terra. a lot. Yeah, I, I find it for my personal taste. I um, I found it a lot less boring, and I would be excited like if someone came up to me and say like five player game of Dimaka, I would always say yep, I'm up for it definitely. And if you told me five player game of Terra Mystica, I would not say uh, yep straight I would away. actually, I would actually say no. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I would probably say like, no unless you tell me it's this or Munchkin, and I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, let's play Terra Mystica. <laughs> I think fun. I'd just rather go and sit in a corner than do either of it. Yeah. Yeah, probably, and get drunk. That's uh, that's pretty much it. But I think that's the only thing that I that I played. I might have played other stuff, but that's the the three things that I that I, that I have in mind. And we're already longer than last week, so uh, our aim to have a shorter episode has not worked out. Yeah, it definitely failed, and I don't think that the editing is gonna make that easier because we've been pretty clear we didn't have any breaks or anything. So yeah, it's gonna be a long. There's a bit where I started imitating uh, a sad Japanese child. You could probably cut that. No, I think I would keep it. Uh, okay. I would keep it and probably, uh, yeah, and probably use it for future podcasts too. Uh, as you know, when you have those episodes in a TV show where you have uh, flashbacks to past episode, 
I think this will be um, a flashback oh, yeah. that I will use in future episodes uh, yep. when I won't have anything to to record and just use old material. Good, good. Good, uh, but that was great. Anything else that you are thinking about? Uh, I should give an update uh, on the cat for anyone. Yes, who's yes, uh, she forgot about that. Perfectly fine. She's being really annoying, actually. So that's that's fine. So um, she's fine then, because that's yeah. that's what a cat is supposed to do. Yeah. So she can uh, in this house. It's quite hard to keep the doors closed, and she can come into the bedroom at night um, and be really annoying. And if she wasn't annoying, she'd be allowed to stay. But we've actually had to devise a way to like barricade the door from the inside to stop her coming in if she's being irritating. So that that tells you how much good health she's in. Yes, uh, she's thriving. So that's, I'm really happy for her. That's great. But that's uh, that was the update that we were missing. Thanks, Joe, for for being here again. Oh no, I shouldn't thank you anymore. No, you You're a co-host. Me. Yeah. No. yeah. Thanks, so, thanks, Red, for joining us today. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, it was great. Thanks for uh, listening. Um, after a small musical interlude you'll have the second part of the Homo Ludens podcast for the September debrief, where the backers of the Homo Ludens show will talk about Men of Iron. See you next month. As you call them, they call you when they need something. Trees for the blunt, to G's for the front. I found a way to get peace of mind for years and left the hell alone. Turn a deaf ear to the cellular phone. Send me a letter or better, we can see each other in real life. Just so you can feel me like a steel knife. At least so you can see the white of their eyes Bright with surprise once they finish spitting lies Associates is your boys, your girls, bitches, niggas, homies Close, but really don't know me Mom, dad, comrade, peeps, brothers, sisters, duns, dunnies Some come around when they need some money Others make us laugh like the Sunday funnies Fan be around whether you pay the bummy You can either ignore this advice or take it from me Be too nice, some people take you for a dummy So nowadays he ain't so friendly Actually they wouldn't even made a worthy enemy Read the signs, no feeding the baboons Seeing as how they got your back bleeding from the stab wounds Y'all know the dance, they smile in your face Y'all know the glance, try to put them on, they blow the chance Never let your so-called mans know your plan A show of hands is a term some people use loosely I'm real choosy on what I choose to let crew see You telling me I try to act broke Jealousy the number one killer among black folk Fellas be under some type of spell like crack smoke Ghetto Cinderella's leading right to your stack low Just another way a chick will lead to your end I checked the dictionary for the meaning of friends and said Person one likes to socialize with, sympathize and help her And that's about the size of it Most of the time these attributes is one-sided To bolster the crime they have to shoot you through your eyelid And they can't hide it Going wild like a wow bitch Sometimes you need to cut niggas off like a light switch And when things get quiet Catch him like a thief in the night, what a right I first met Mr. Fantastic at an arms deal Don't let it get drastic, think of how your moms will feel When they get for real, still get the sparking Everything darkin', it ain't no talking For something so cheap, so it buys a lot of trouble They better all focus in and trying to plot the bubble Or else it'd be a sad note to end on The guns we got is some come in the form of codependence. A lot of times only end up being co-defendants. Ten bucks say they tell for a lower sentence. They leave you up under the jail begging for repentance. It don't make no sense. What happened to the loyalty? Honor amongst crooks, trust amongst royalty. I'd rather go out in a blaze than give them the glory. A similar story for four lovers. We need to have some type of overstanding. Just so when I let her get the man, thinks she knows no strings. We could do the damn thing, but hoe us no rings. Just how the tramp swings. Will she see him again? That depends on how good was the skins. Or could she memorize the lessons? It ain't no need to pretend. Even though she let him stab it, she know they just win.
friends are and the next nice neighborhood I move into, you guys will get cracked. <laughs> this is the second part of our monthly podcast, as we do every month. Uh, with a few supporters of the show, we will discuss the Club de Jeux game of the month. Le Club de Jeux is our game club, uh, and each month, the community votes for a game. We learn and play it together, uh, and usually at the end of the month, we have a bit of a debriefing session to talk about it. In September, we played uh, Men of Iron by GMT Games. It's more of a system than a single game, and the series cover battles of the medieval era. Uh, it's a moderately simple hex encounter game um, with scenarios uh, lasting from one to three hours and covering a big part of uh, the Middle Ages, but we'll talk about this a bit later. I have with me this month uh, Timothy, uh, who is with us for, for the first time. So hi, Timothy. Hello. And we have two regular guests, uh, Pierre and Stuart. How are you guys doing? Yeah, bad, thanks. Yeah, I'm doing good. Always happy to talk about Man of Iron. Good, <laughs> good, good. That's great. Uh, but I would like, first of all, to thank the three of you for being here and talk about this game. So that's really cool. But Timothy, you're here for the first time. Um, so I was wondering, would you mind briefly introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, sure. I don't have many credentials as far as... Uh... <laughs> Uh, uh, historical background uh, with some of these, with some of the topics, but I have been a lifetime gamer and recently, I would say in the last four years or so, realized that uh, it really is um, historical gaming that, that, that hits the spot for me. And just to be clear, uh, no one needs credentials to be on that <laughs> show. We just need to have enjoyed the game and 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 or even not enjoyed it. That's completely fine. Just having played it and have things to say, and you're welcome on the show. So that's great. I'm really happy that you're here. But then I would say for us to start, as usual, what we do here is I rely on one of my guests to actually provide the historical context because I'm too lazy to work on it. Uh, and as it's usually the case when we're talking about medieval stuff, um, I'm always happy to have Stuart on the show because I can just lay back, relax, and listen to him talk. So Stuart, can you provide us? And I will say briefly, please, not briefly, not too briefly, but I'm worried that you're going to go on a rant for two hours and I want to keep this episode tight. So can you, I will, I will allow you five to 10 minutes maximum. Four games. For, for, so, for, all, for all of the series. The whole thing. So yeah, I'll try and focus a bit on Men of Iron. Is a, it's a hex encounter system about battles so i'll focus a bit on the kind of battle aspect of it and we can cut out a lot of the context that way because it's it's a couple hundred years of history across the whole series i'll do it chronologically for the order of the series because that's easier for me to keep track of rather than chronologically the game the actual events so the first game is men of iron the original which is roughly covering what we would talk about as being the infantry revolution of the 14th century which is this event in and around the 14th century where medieval armies, particularly Western European medieval armies, we see a decrease in the amount of cavalry that's being fought and an increase in the amount of foot soldiers, particularly with the big shift being in certain regions, the nobility dismounting and fighting on foot. And there's been a lot of things written on why this happened and the reasons behind it and where the origins are. But the First Men of Iron covers approximately that period with battles from the Scottish Wars, including William Wallace at Falkirk and uh, Robert Bruce Bannockburn in 1314. We have the Flemish Revolt and the Battle of Courtrai in 1302, where a bunch of Flemish urban burghers defeat the flower of French chivalry. And then, of course, we have the early stages of the Hundred Years' War. We have Crecy, Poitiers. We have what's the Najera in Spain. 
And then if you have the tri-pack, you also get the scenario from C3I, which is Agincourt, which is kind of the only 15th century one in that original run of the system. So it's mostly, it's Falkirk is late 13th century, but it's mostly 14th century uh, Western European fighting, mostly foot soldiers with a bit of cavalry. And then the second entry in the game is Infidel. Infidel is the Crusades. True to Crusades history, we just skip the second crusade entirely. So we have the first crusade, which is 1095 to 1099, which originally is a campaign that features quite a lot of battles and sieges. It features armies from mostly France, but also key groups from southern Italy and what at the time was West Germany and is now eastern France, marching from Constantinople initially with Byzantine support, uh, and then on their own down to Jerusalem, fighting a couple battles along the way, and then eventually taking Jerusalem. They carve out a kind of Western Christian enclave that lasts for a little over two centuries. And in that time, there are many battles fought. The infidel game focuses mostly on that kind of early period uh, the first sort of 30 years of the Crusades. And then we also have the th- a bit of the Third Crusade, which is after Saladin takes uh, Jerusalem. We have Richard the Lionheart coming over with Philip II of France and this huge crusade from all over Europe. So we have a couple battles from that. We have a few in between. I think Monkisard is in it. And weirdly not Hatton, which is Saladin's great victory. But you get kind of a, a smattering of late 11th century and late 12th century uh, crusading warfare. And then the third entry in the series is the Wars of the Roses. We all love the Wars of the Roses. Uh, immediately after the, their defeat in the Hundred Years' War, the English descend into civil war where various uh, factions within the English royal line are fighting for who gets to be king, uh, with one basically line of descent uh, deposing the king and then being killed la- or overthrown again later. It's really a series of wars rather than one conflict. Mm-hmm. We have a nice set of battles from that. Finally, there's Archibus, which is the... Uh, Italian wars in which after winning the Hundred Years' War, the French kings, uh, or the heirs of the French kings, not actually Charles VII, uh, decide to invade northern Italy and get into this huge prolonged war with northern Italian city-states and then also with the Holy Roman Emperor, who is also at this time the king of Spain, and it becomes this big kind of pan-European conflict. And then, of course, you also have the Reformation kicks off around this time. So it's this huge, messy, horrible conflict, uh, and this takes a very granular look at it. Uh, and the battles. It's also a period when you start to see kind of the early stages of what would be pike and shot tactics. So across the games, you kind of have the first game is very infantry with a bit of cavalry and a lot of archery. Infidel, you start to see the kind of horse archery and skirmishing tactics that were common in Muslim armies in the crusading period against the kind of more strictly heavily armored knights of the crusaders. In uh, Blood and Roses, you have a slightly more symmetrical set of forces because you have an English civil war so you still have lots of bows and foot soldiers. And you also have early gunpowder and early artillery. And then in Archibus, you have kind of not quite pike in shot yet, but what's becoming, you have pikemen and you have arquebuses and you have artillery. So you have all the kind of main ingredients of pike and shot. And what we would think of as being the kind of classic pike and shot tactics really come out of the Italian wars. Just to be clear, the series covers like how many centuries if you're looking at it or, or as a whole? So Infidel starts in 1095 and mm. the Archibus goes to 1525, I think it ends around Pavia. Yeah, so almost three and a half centuries then. It's pretty massive. It's, it's going to be even longer with the new uh, one as well. Uh, the the, the new, new installment is going to have the Battle of Civitate or Civitate, which is 1053, I think. So... Yeah. It's going to be and it will really good. fill in that um, 
kind of 12th century that's a bit missing from it. So yeah, yeah. it'll be lots and lots of centuries. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's and that's maybe something that we'll talk about about how the system uh, does that cover this as a single system because I expect that the art of war uh, during that period actually changed quite a bit. But that's something that we'll discuss a bit more into details when we talk about uh, the game. Before we talk about our experience with the game, there is something that I would like to say that I haven't said in any other podcast, which I think is a bit stupid. Is I'd like to remind our listeners that Stuart, who just gave that brilliant historical review of uh, what what of context of uh, of the game recently published a book uh, called the medieval crossbow a weapon fit to kill a king and it's published by pen and sword and i would say it's a great book it has a lot of crossbows in it even very nice diagrams of crossbows and how they work and all that stuff i think it's pretty cool um so if you're uh, as he is passionate about crossbow i would recommend the book before we talk about the game, usually what I'd like to ask each of you is what's your experience with the game? So how, how many times you managed to play during the mounts for when it was Le Club de Jeu, uh, game of the mounts, but also uh, figuring out if you had past experience with uh, with the game. And I guess we can start with you, Pierre. Yeah, sure. Um, so I played it, I think, four times during the, the game of the month. Um, five if you count me just watching Fred and Stuart play <laughs> um, but uh, yeah I, I played it quite a few times and before that I had played it a lot I think it's my my most played war, ga- war game by quite a lot because it was my first war game and I really got stuck in uh, stuck into it and when the, the tri-pack finally came out I mean there's just so much content in there that you could just play for, for, for months without really needing another war game if you really like the the sort of setting as I do. Um, I, I'm also part of the the playtest for the newer installment uh, that's on P500 at the moment. And as I say, yeah, that that covers sort of uh, the the Barons War twelve twelve hundreds uh, and the uh, it, it's it's branded as being like the Norman installment, but it is like it's not just the Battle of Hastings. You know, there's a lot around that. Um, smaller unit counts, but uh, very interesting battles. And uh, yeah, I, I, I love the game. I played it quite a bit, and I've I think I've played almost every battle in the tri pack, apart from maybe three or four in Blood and Roses. And do you know when the next one? Around when the next one is supposed to be released, or at what stage they're in? No, I mean it's uh, maybe I can't remember exactly, but maybe three months ago it, or four months ago, one of the P five hundred. It might have been even longer. Time flies, but. Uh, so it has only just gotten the P500 relatively recently in sort of GMT time. The balance, I mean, we're, we're getting new balance sort of patches, I guess, new new vassal files to, to play yeah. around with uh, every every three, four weeks. So, I mean, it's it's moving along. Um, it's probably not quite finished there. There's no art at all yet. So it'll probably be quite a while, probably a year. Okay. Yeah. So it's not, you know, yeah. it's not in, like it's not incoming soon. It's exactly. not probably something yeah. that would be later next year or something That's like right, this. Yeah. 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 Okay, makes sense. One of those titles you can put your, in your P500 and magically show up in three years at your doorstep. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a total surprise. And you were like, what? What? What, what is this? And you, Timothy, what's your, uh, what's your experience with the game? Um, I was, well, initially, I was really happy that it um, was uh, voted game uh, to, to, uh, to be the monthly game because... I had actually bought it, I think, it, early pandemic, um, and I was really excited because I had played a lot of SPQR, and I assumed mistakenly that this would just sort of be a, a and uh, like there are obvious connections 
to that system. But I really thought that I would just be able to open it up, set up a battle, and just follow the sequence of play. And with my familiarity with SPQR, be able to just immediately digest everything. And I was really wrong. <laughs> um, there's, I'm sure we'll talk about this in the future, but there's the, the flight points and the sort of rallying around the standard Um which is, as opposed to SPQR, you have you you have individual leaders running around trying to rally people, which is a lot of fun. The first time I set it up, I was kind of discouraged, and um, I don't like using the word shame, but it was a uh, put on my shelf of opportunity, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I don't think I would have pulled it out again. It, it's this is not really, although, uh, like apart from being interested in you know nights on horseback as a kid. I, this was never really my time period of interest. And now I am I really want to dive in more between this and, and Levy and Campaign. And I know that we're supposed to be talking about one game and not <laughs> multiple right now, but um, I'm starting to feel the medieval bug. In fact, I bought Stuart's book uh, yesterday. And I'm <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, basically the Homo Dance uh, backer community is a, is a Pyramid scheme, like you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you just come well, in, I, you can I sell your products, and yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's most, uh, yeah, more or less the idea. And and Stuart himself has twenty copies of Red Flag over Paris in his place. He doesn't know what to do. He had to move, he had to move uh, to a new home to actually store all of it. So. You're really just <laughs> handing the same twenty pound note back between yeah. each other. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of scenarios, uh, I played through Crazy twice. I soloed one. I'm trying to remember. It was in Blood and Roses. Oh, Tewksbury. And then, of course, watched the uh, the stream, which, you know, when I say that out loud, it, it doesn't feel like that's much uh, engagement with the game. But and maybe I was actually hoping we could talk about uh, the difference between playing solo and opposed with a system like this, because I actually I really enjoyed playing solo. It, it felt like watching a three hour movie to me. <laughs> And I, usually that's a, a good challenge because, uh, and that's something that we usually address because it often happens that, and that's why I also ask what kind of experience you had with the game. Uh, I always want to check uh, if any of us have played it solo so we can compare a bit the, uh, the types of experience that you have from playing solo to, to playing face-to-face. So that's definitely something that I have on the, on the list of things to, to ask you, the, the three of you, on, on how it changed your, your perspective on the game and how soloable it is. Uh, and I'm asking because I never play game solo, so I wouldn't be able to answer those questions. <laughs> so I need your <laughs> I need your input. And 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 for you, Stuart, what was your uh, experience with the game? So I bought the tri pack back in February, I think, of this year, as kind of a push, like like with um, Pierre, to kind of get me into wargaming. I had dabbled in wargaming throughout my life, and I'd been quite an intense like miniatures wargamer for many years. But I always really, obviously, I'm really into history, so and I'm really into gaming, so it was kind of an inevitable thing. And I thought, like, okay, this is the year. I'm going to do it. And I was like, I hadn't really played any, I don't think I'd played any Hex Encounter before. It was on a good offer. You know, big box of medieval battles. You know, let's do that. So I bought that, and I, I also kind of started my blog at the same time. So I was playing through the battles and writing about, you know, writing them up on my blog, really playing mostly just the first game, Men of Iron. And I'd played one scenario of Infidel, and that was it. And so for this month, I decided to try and play a battle from all of them. So I played one each from the main, the main published four. I did try and see if I could make time to play the playtest one with Pierre, but it, it didn't really work out because yeah, yeah. it was also a crazy month for work and stuff. So 
uh, I played, yeah, five games overall. I played one from each. I played three of those solo. I played Arquebus against Russ, who's also on the server. And then I played, obviously, on the stream against Fred. So I played two Men of Iron original and then one each from the others. Okay, so actually you touched a bit upon yeah, uh, qu- quite a quite a large range of of uh, of battles and yeah, and and period and everything. So it's actually pretty interesting. Of course, with Spear being the one with the most uh, experience with the with the game, I would like to go back to you, Timothy, to to start the discussion about the overall system uh, because mm-hmm. you mentioned something around the connection with the other big Berg system, which is Great Battles of History. I would I was curious about the lineage. Um, how much do you feel it's it's connected in terms of system, but also how different it felt uh, when you when you jumped into uh, Men of Iron? You know, I think there there's more. Hmm. I don't know if this is true, actually. I was going to say that the, the troops are slightly more homogenized in SPQR. And I don't know if that's entirely true when you consider all three. I mean, especially in Infidel, there's it introduces a bunch more cavalry units. Um, but I think, I mean, the main difference, though, is in this uh, rallying around the, the standard um, and as well as the different ways in which you activate the troops, whereas... In SPQR, you have many more sort of subordinate leaders um, that all have smaller ranges. Whereas, I mean, in the scenarios that I played, it was rarely more than, you know, every battle, which is sort of the the smallest unit of a formation, um, would have one leader. So you typically only have about, you know, three to four leaders. I, I don't know if you guys played any scenarios that were... Uh, larger it's, than that. About that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, all of the ones that I played uh, yeah, had like around three to four leaders per side, something like this. Whereas in SPQR, you might have something which is like, you know, there's one leader attached to a horse unit that is, you know, in charge of maybe three other counters. Um, and in a, uh, in a scenario where there's actually, I think the, I think those battles are just more, you know, I don't know what the scale is per sort of strength point. But there's certainly more counters out on the map. And I thought that that was kind of... And maybe that says something about the period, too, uh, or between the two periods, between ancient warfare and, and medieval, in terms of um, just the, the the number of infantry out on the field. I think that's a good point, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think that you touch with the leaders, you touch on the side with SPQR and with, with GBOH. I'm more familiar with the newest sort of... Uh, Julius Caesar deluxe box. Um, it, it's a lot more trying to simulate the command structure, whereas this mm-hmm. is this does have uh, Men of Iron is more about the individual leaders and you, them sort of having their units, their battles, and moving around the map themselves. And I I like that you get a lot more freedom with that way, whereas the the GBOH side I think is trying to do what it what it does is what it's trying to do really well. You know, if it does that make sense, like it's but it is more slow plodding uh, simulation, simul- simulationist more than anything else. And that's the thing. So what did you feel about the tempo of the game? Because I felt like the fact that you have those, it's not really strictly a I go, you go. Uh, you activate a leader and you activate all the battle with it. And that's actually quite, uh, it goes pretty fast. And I was curious about maybe maybe starting with you, Stuart, how did you feel about the tempo of the game and what were your expectations when you were uh, when you opened a box that was a hex encounter that maybe looked a bit more old school, were you surprised by the way the game flowed? Yeah, I kind of had some inclination of how it was going to go because I looked into it a bit 
And I was really intrigued by, by the continuity and the fact that you can roll to see if you can activate subsequent battles. So you activate one battle and move them, and then you activate other ones. You can have a chance to activate more on your turn. And I really like that as a system. I think it's a, it can get a little wonky as a kind of model if you play some of the, some of the mm-hmm. bigger battles, because you'll end up in situations where like you just activate the same two battles all the time, and the other guys are just like standing at the back not doing anything. Because it's not worth like activating them to march forward if they're like more than two turns away from getting into actual combat. You're much better trying to push an advantage now. But that said, like as a play experience, I really like it, and I think it, I like the smaller battles a bit more. Yeah. Or ones where there are fewer leaders anyway, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it avoids some of that. Like, oh, here's a battle I just didn't use for the entire scenario. Mm. I was curious if you thought that that might. Um... Like, is that a good reflection of maybe some of these battles where, you know, someone is uh, one leader is maybe uh, uh, less willing to commit to the engagement in the first place and is just there for show. <laughs> and when things go poorly, they they flee. I think for some of them it is like I think when we played Poitiers, I think that's a good example where the, the French did kind of hit in waves. And John the second did really just kind of sit at the back and didn't mm-hmm. really do anything for most of the battle. So there are ones where it definitely works. And then I think there are other ones where I think it, like it works less well if there are sort of like two flanks that are fighting. Yeah. Like if it's one army attacking one position, it can work a bit better than if it's like, well, we have a left flank and a right flank and they're fighting. And then realistically, they should both be fighting simultaneously, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which I found like a bit more. I played Antioch in Infidel and it felt a bit more like we should probably be activating more as a whole than each of these individual battles, particularly for the Crusader army. But that's a quirk of the system. But at the same time, it, it does, I, I do think it's a really interesting system. And I like, I like the continuity system. Uh, some of the battles also feels like the continuity chances are so low that it's a bit disappointing. I feel like it should be a bit more likely in a lot of them, but it is a very cool system and it does go quickly and it gets you really invested in like each role and each, it can really change the tempo really rapidly Mm-hmm. which is great. Mm-hmm. So you can have like a really good turn and then a really terrible turn and it keeps things really open throughout the game. So it's hard to predict and you have exciting moments. And and Pierre, you were about to, to say something at some point. So yeah, with with the uh, sort of the continuity and, and what I was going to touch on what Timothy um, said earlier with uh, like some lords being maybe um, nervous to get stuck into the fight. Um, the Battle of Bosworth in, in the pack I think gamifies that quite quite well with the Stanleys um, coming in late and choosing a side before coming in. So, so I think it it does recognize that as a as a possibility within the game rules, um, but maybe not within sort of the the reality of the game rules in every other scenario, with it playing out with the battles actually failing to activate in the first place because it's kind of pointless to activate certain battles when you want to sort of continue the fight, push the fight on your on your right flank. I, I, I really like the system. I think it's it plays smoothly once you get used to it. I think after my like third uh, session with it, I had just got sort of the rules down and you can, all you have to look at and have in one hand is the reference for the for the combat results tables that you just have to look down. I mean, after a few fights, if you've been playing it, of for quite a while you know you you do tend to remember the crts which i think in a lot of other games like gboh for example there's just no way to remember the crts mm-hmm, and, the, mm-hmm. and the depth because it's just it's just a lot more in depth and for, for better or for worse you know sometimes that's that's good sometimes that's not what you want so i i think it plays really smoothly and nicely whether it's good as it's a good simulation i'm not so sure but yeah 
and that would we'll, we'll discuss uh, a bit later. But first, I would like also to have your 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 feel for for it, Timothy. So you said that coming from GBOH, it was very uh, very different. How did you feel was the tempo of the game? Definitely, uh, that you see you see a lot more movement, um, and part of that is just the the physical reality of <laughs> there's more counters to push around. Um, and again, I although I like playing p- plenty of games uh, 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 opposed typically tactical games i just really enjoy playing solo and just enjoying the uh enjoying that seeing that outcome unfold so when it comes to something like spqr it would much less happened it was in a single uh, uh sitting uh which kind of sometimes felt a little uh difficult to imagine what happened you know in real time in the actual battle uh you know only lasted yeah a couple hours, um, you know, I sit down and it maybe took me 10 hours to play through a full scenario because I'm playing both sides and burning myself out. Whereas the the counter density on Men of Iron is, is significantly lower and, and I, I was able to. Um, but again, I, I find it hard to justify. I, I try to tell myself what the, I try to um, give the designer the benefit of the doubt in any game when I start questioning like, well, what's going on here? Like, you know, like Stuart mentioned, you know, you might have an, especially when you have two flanks, um, like what is going on in that other flank? And I try to imagine, okay, maybe, well, maybe they're sort of stalled and just sort of skirmishing with one another. Um, but it gets harder to sort of justify the abstraction sometimes. Um, and then, of course, when I'm playing solo, I'm, I'm, I'm only one brain, so I get fascinated with, with one flank, and then I just keep doing continuation rolls on that flank and, and sort of forgetting <laughs> about the other side. But I could see that happening opposed, too. And to your point about GBOH, I'm always a bit suspicious when a game portraying an event takes longer to play than the <laughs> event itself. I was a bit like, that's weird. Unless there is a specific statement that the designer wants to make, I, I think it's always suspicious. But yeah, th- this tempo for me also felt a bit off. I think it makes a lot of sense in the gameplay. It makes it really fluid. Like you're going to activate different formations of your uh, of your army, and but it's it's true that in some battles, and I think we really saw that for Poitiers to work when we played together. Like there were literally no incentive for you to to have that wave effect that happened historically, and you had, did have like a big bunch of your army sitting in the back behind the hill, not making any effort. I think you activate them once, but then realize you didn't really need them. I had a good run of continuity and I was able to activate them, which is what happens every time I play them. Like you have one good string in the early turn and you move them and you're like, ever again. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess yeah. we haven't mentioned the whole continuity, how the, how the mechanic works in terms of, you know, you don't, because it's fairly likely you will fail the role you know, you don't want to risk risk your role or your free activation on a battle that's barely a part of the battle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and maybe for the listeners who haven't played the game. So first of all, I recommend watching the stream if you want to see how it plays. But just for a bit of context, we have those formations. Each leader have a role under which you need to roll to be to be sure to activate them. But the first time you activate uh, when, it's your, when it's your turn, this one will be activated for free. And it's only the second one that you have to roll for. So the first one that you'll pick will always be the one that is critical. And you never take the risk of activating something that is in the back because you're probably already engaging the enemy somewhere and you need to do something about it. So it does have the bias toward activating the things that are the the formations that are already in contact with each other i would say going back to what's something that you were saying pierre around the the 
the CRT. Uh, I think it's interesting because I, I do feel like the combat system itself, like the resolution of the of the of the of the combat between two units, is is actually pretty light, and that was a good surprise for me because. It does contain a lot of historical flavor, but still remain light. But I was sometimes a bit annoyed by the DRM fest that yeah. I was confronted <laughs> with. It's like, okay, I look at the matrix, fair enough. Then I look at the counter, fair enough. Then what's the situation? How many units are here? Am I? Is it the continuation of my charge? Uh, am I in that situation? Is there this? Mm-hmm. Is there that? And at some point, I was like, well, I'm looking through a Chinese menu here, and I think it's a bit annoying. <laughs> are so, you archers shooting into the flank of cavalry? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's, that's one. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and you're like, come on, come on. Like at some point, it, it isn't like isn't it this a bit to the disservice of the system? Like in a way, it feels like there is an intent of doing something a bit light and fast, and, mm-hmm, and with a mm-hmm. lot of back and forth. And then you have this fight system where it's pretty elegant that you have the modifier on each counter and everything, and that's really cool. And then you go through that 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 list of potential DRMs, and you're like, when is it gonna stop? And it feels pretty tedious. And yeah, I wanted to hear what are your thoughts on this, uh, Pierre? I mean, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. But then I think I've played it so much that you do sort of get into that flow where you're like, okay, these are the like. There's a lot to pass initially when you look at the actual sheet and you're like, okay, I need to check this, then I need to check this. And you're acting like it's like a shopping list of checking things off, you know, of like whether something's happening or something's not happening. But eventually you do sort of <laughs> like look into the matrix. <laughs> you just you just figure it out and you can just do it as you go. I'm sure Stuart sort of got this eventually too of like after having played it quite a while, like a lot of the time you just kind of know which pluses and minuses you have here. Mm-hmm. You do have to always like check back just to make sure sometimes and it's not at all smooth. It could be a lot smoother. And I think Stuart, you're probably going to bring up other game systems that you've tried out that do handle it a lot more smoothly. But I, I, I yeah, I, I don't think it's too bad once you have experience, but then I think that's not necessarily a positive for you to need experience to make it um, bearable. I- you know? <laughs> I also, uh, I never, I did not play enough scenarios to memorize the matrix, but I did, uh, once I really got into it, I, I was starting to get a feel of, I would roll the die first before checking the DRMs. And then <laughs> if it was low, I wouldn't bother. If it was high, I would take a peek. It's not a bad idea, honestly, yeah. Yeah, yeah but it does uh, say a lot about the system that you roll the dice and then you, and, and, and then you figure out what are your modifiers yeah, you and everything. Because the modifiers, you're supposed to take them into account to make a decision, but it's so true, tedious true, that you don't true. want to do it. And for me, it says something about the system. Uh, what's, I what's... absolutely do that as well. Like, I, I'll if I'll like, I'll get an eyeball on the on the modifiers. I'll be like, oh, I'm probably like plus three. Roll the yeah. die, and it's like not very good. And I'm like, I don't care. Or I'll be like, oh, this is a minus two roll, and I roll a one. And I'm like, he retreats. <laughs> this like... is actually Maybe something is... about. Oh, sorry, here. I was gonna say this might be a good segue to do like talk about the solo aspect of it and how you can just do that you know mm-hmm. and it doesn't really matter if you mm-hmm. and before we do that timothy you were about to say to say something about oh, that well this might be uh, uh <laughs> i mean berg could be a whole uh episode himself i suppose um but i i never really know how serious to take him like if he's going for a you know a very serious hex encounter uh, like we're really trying to um uh, get to the bottom of some of these uh, weapon systems up against each other, or but sometimes I feel like uh, because the way the rules are written, like he will throw in jokes and things in different yeah. games, and even just the concept of the unforced counter is one of my favorite things because you have this little knight and it just says uh next to it, even though it's 
<laughs> even though I know it stands for unhorsed. Um, I can't help but think that that's maybe intentional uh, because they are essentially useless on the on the field. Um, <laughs> Oh, they suck so bad. <laughs> I, love, I love that reading of it. I, I'm going to, that's kind of definitely. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and back to your point, Pierre, so about the, the solo. So as I said, I haven't played solo. Timothy and Stuart, you did. And Pierre, I guess you, you probably had to for, for playtest. Yeah. But uh, maybe, so Timothy, maybe starting with you, mm-hmm. have you played solo and opposed or only solo? I have only played this solo. Yeah. Okay. So um, what was your experience playing only solo then? Well, the one thing I would say is if I'm going to be competitive, and this is just maybe a me thing, I, I do, I, I, I get very competitive. And when I play something like, I don't know, um, I mean, these are difficult to solo in general, but like a CDG, I, I really do get into the, um, I want to play opposed, I want to play my best, and I really want to uh, I enjoy that experience. Um, and I hope my opponent is also, um, you know, taking it to some degree. I know these are games, but on some level taking it, um, for lack of better words, seriously. Uh, and I have found that when I play tactical games, if I am playing it opposed, it's hard to, uh, you know, unless both players are in the right mood to sort of laugh at misfortune of a die roll or something. Um, I have had trouble having a good time sometimes because I, I just want to sit in my kitchen and, and you know, watch uh, uh, an entire battle crumble because of a couple bad die rolls and then to just sort of uh, uh, cheer it on because I'm just, wa- I'm just witnessing luck <laughs> and story. But you feel like you... Would you like to to try it uh, still opposed, or are you happy with the solo experience overall? If I were to play it opposed, I think I would want to at least have played the scenario beforehand to get Mm. some sense of its balance, because I do think baked into a lot of these are some... Well, this was... And maybe I'm speaking too soon, but uh, I did flip... Even though I only played those two scenarios, I I flipped through all three books... um, yeah, I don't know if maybe each one has like a, like if you're going to play competitively, this is the best scenario or something. But I, I do find some of them are fairly one-sided. Yeah, and I have a point about balance for, for, for after that. So I think we'll touch we'll touch upon it. Maybe now I was thinking about you, Stuart, because I know that you mostly played solo. And I think the game uh, that we had on the stream was the first one that you played opposed. And I was wondering about the difference that you saw in the experience from solo to opposed. Yeah, so I played it all solo initially and for a while i wasn't sure if i would play it opposed like i, I enjoyed the solo experience but as we will talk about with balance and with the calculating drms and everything i kind of enjoyed it more as like uh just seeing what happens and seeing how it models the event but yeah i actually had a pretty good time playing it uh, against you and then i played uh, Archibus against russ and i had a good time playing that as well i think a lot of it is you do have to pick the right scenarios. There's a lot of scenarios, especially in the first Meadow Iron Box, that I don't think I'd ever play against someone else because I don't think it would be... One of us would not have an enjoyable time, maybe Mm -hmm. both of us. Uh, But there are some that I think are well-suited to it and you can enjoy. So I think that is a piece to it. And as kind of to Timothy's point about having played it again, I don't even know for me necessarily it would be having that familiarity so much as knowing if it's if it's a good scenario to play against someone like is this are we gonna both have a good time yeah i think it might have improved a bit over time with the later entries being a bit better for it than the first in men of iron 
But yeah, I had a better time, but I will keep playing it solo. I still really enjoy it solitaire and there are quite a few battles i think still would mostly work better as solitaire battles than as a mm-hmm. as a competitive one that i want to try makes sense and and for you pierre did you did you did you, you have both experience right yes yeah i've played it quite a lot solo um i think most of my plays are solo but i have i think i've played pretty much all of the basic men of iron um battles against an opponent i think i'd say if you are approaching it as a solo player uh, maybe the the blood and roses scenarios are the most sort of balanced, so and they tend to be the biggest as well, uh, as well as the infidel scenarios. So maybe don't don't go for those as initially. Um, and all the and, units have the same shock value, which is nice when it comes to DRMs. That that is true. That that is true for solo. But but I think that the basic men of iron ones do have do tend to be a bit smaller and more manageable. So maybe and and have a sort of an array of units and stuff that that you can play around with. Um, I, I think if you are looking for that competitive. Um, System. It, it is really blood and I and blood and roses and um, Archibus, as as Stuart said. The later entries tend to tend to focus more on that. But I, I think the one sidedness of it is is a lot more by design. Um, right. I, I'm Fred. You're, you're going to go on to that. I, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing that I want to talk about right now because obviously, when talking about solo, it came up because it makes sense that when you're playing something that is very imbalanced and you just want to play it to see how a battle unfolds, it makes sense to play it solo. So it it was natural that you would mention it. But now that you're on it, Pierre, you have you're the one with the most experience with the with the overall system. The game is known for having a lot of scenarios that are completely imbalanced by design, and I was wondering how you felt about it, and and if you have some recommendations for people who are looking for balanced scenario in the system. Yeah, of of course. Um, I I think it's great. I think games, especially ones that are portraying historical periods. I think it's, if you can balance it, fantastic. But I don't think there is a sort of necessity to make it balanced. Um, that that's not how battles worked in the past. Sometimes there's a famous battle and it just wasn't very balanced. And it's nice to see that play out. And in that case, I think what Stuart and Timothy touched on of it sort of feeling like watching a movie play out, but with your little quirks and your little orders that you're actually giving to your units, that's the joy that you get from it, the stories that you're telling from it. I think if you want a more balanced scenario, again, like most of the Blood and Roses one, maybe not the first St. Albans, because that's a tiny one, um, but all of them have roughly the same sort of uh, amount of units on both sides, um, and, and they have, I mean, to be honest, every scenario has little notes on how to balance it to make it a bit more, um, a bit less one-sided. So if you really want to play any of the scenarios and you really, really want to play them and make it a balanced in sort of air quotes experience, just go for the one you want and and look at the notes at the bottom of each um, playbook and, and implement all of them, I'd say. Uh, and do you feel like those additions usually do a good job at, at balancing it out? I, I feel like they, so I haven't played all of them with the additions. I've only played a couple with the additions, mostly the ones in Infidel, because I think that, uh, I think when I played you, Fred, uh, for the very first time uh, with the Infidel Snow, which one was it? Was it Ascalon? Yeah, Ascalon, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was completely one-sided. And I had played that scenario once before with all of the balance sort of suggestions on, and it was sort of down to the wire and a really good experience. Mm. Um, so, it, but that was interesting seeing both sides of it, you know. And I still had a good time getting my teeth kicked in. <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of fun. Uh, it was, it was, <laughs> it was a lot of fun, but in its own way, you know. It's not at that point. It's not about winning. It's about the story that you're telling with the yeah. counters, with the with the leaders who are charging a certain flank, and and getting those continuation rolls of rolling up lines. It's all, yeah, yeah. That's the way I see it, at least. 
And, and for you, Stuart, any thoughts about the, the the balance of the of those scenarios? Yeah, so I think it's an interesting one. One of the things that it's like this kind of issue of like how how do you balance, and if you want to balance for historical outcome, do you balance for the outcome that happened, or do you balance for the outcome that was more likely to happen, which mm-hmm. aren't always the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think generally it kind of favors the outcome that did happen. But I do really like, the Pierre mentioned, the kind of balancing notes. One of the things I really like about them is some of them are just like, here's how to make the game a bit more balanced. But some of them are actual, like, historiographical quirks. Like, you know, in Agincourt, for the default scenario, they've picked the kind of anecdote that the French were all hungover. So <laughs> the French all start disordered. But you can go, well, if you don't actually think that was, like, what happened, you could, here's a variant where they're not all hungover. And so there's a bit of that kind of, like, well, here's an interpretive like different view on the battle that then changes this aspect of it. So you can kind of tweak it to fit your understanding of the battle and the history of it. And then you can kind of see how it unfolds with these few elements are different. Like when I played, we played Serignola from Archibus. This was more of like a, what if than a historiographical issue, but in that one, the French kind of attack a little bit premature and there's uh, so their artillery haven't arrived. So there's a, a variant where, you play as if, well, what if the French attacked the next day? So then you, you alter set up this way, you put these artillery heck pieces in, and then you fight this battle, and it's significantly more balanced. And so there's kind of interesting things like that. So you have a bit of like, well, here's a historiographical dispute that we've kind of, you can play with or without, or we've picked a side, but here's a way to play it without that, our view. And then there's this other one where you can be like, okay, well, what if this slightly different thing happened? What if we rested before we attacked? What if this this bad thing that affected one side hadn't happened? So I, I think they're they're very cool, and the way you can kind of tweak the balance of it is really interesting, and I think is much more interesting to me than if they were actually just perfectly balanced battles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and for you, Timothy, beyond what you were saying about solo, any thoughts about balance? Do you think that it makes sense that those scenarios are imbalanced or do you think it's a yeah i mean i guess that's just the uh the challenge of especially for i don't know maybe this is also a problem in uh uh modern warfare as well but it it certainly feels like in, in in this time period the mistake was made not necessarily on the battlefield of like oh i activated my archers uh 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 too soon or three hexes too soon the mistake was made off screen you know a couple days prior yeah. um yeah yeah and and now i'm trapped here and forced to to make a stand so in terms of and going back to what Stuart was saying about the the variance that's actually another reason i really like or another thing i appreciate about berg which is i i do feel like throughout his games there's there's a lot of um yeah we really don't know and and he's sort of open to um Although I think he makes his case on some things, like you know crossbows being useless. In in other ways, I feel like he's very open to just not knowing something. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting what you say about the mistake or or the outcome of the battle was decided before. And I would say that in in that sense, it makes more sense to play Levian campaign as a system <laughs> to understand what happens uh, during a battle rather than this. Uh, which I think is interesting. The but mistake now that you... is that he didn't bring a cart with him. Yeah, exactly. And they don't have food, and they're gonna have so they have to fight in that place, and they're not ready for it, and they don't even have the right assets with them, so they cannot uh, they cannot shoot and everything. So that yeah. But now that you touched upon it, Timothy, I have to ask Stuart, 
the crossbows in the game? Are you happy with their depiction? I'm... And you have one minute <laughs> exactly to say everything that you think uh, that you feel about cr the crossbow depiction in the game. Okay, Pierre, get the PowerPoint. So <laughs> <laughs> I think they're better in the later games. Uh, I was actually very happy with the crossbows in Archibus, but in in Men of Iron, they're just they're such hot garbage. And it's very annoying <laughs> to me. First of all, archery is too powerful. I think across the board, it's a little more acceptable in Archibus because there's a lot of gunpowder. But like archery didn't kill people very often in this in the periods that most of these game co games cover. It's mostly mm -hmm. a support weapon. It's not certainly not for killing hundreds and hundreds of men. <laughs> and it's often like more effective to walk your archers up to point blank range and shoot people than it is to charge them with your cavalry, which is insane <laughs> mm. and that gets better over time the modifiers get less like point blank and blood and roses is plus one uh and blood and roses is actually really cool because there's a much longer range because it's on a much smaller scale so you can shoot further so instead of just being able to shoot one or two x's you can shoot like six x's but like you have great penalties at that range uh so i think the later depictions of archery are better but in core men of iron the first men of iron and to a certain degree infidel archery is way too powerful the difference between longbows and crossbows shouldn't be that significant. They're pretty similar weapons. And the fact that crossbows are just like strictly worse is just, it's a dagger to my poor heart. <laughs> and I've gone on about it at length, stupid, especially in the Agincourt scenario, stupid longbows are stupid, too good. <laughs> They're like machine guns, aren't they? <laughs> They're yeah. just brutal. Like, it's just like, oh, I just killed your men of arms. And, and the fact that like, cause you can only shock combat one, a unit once mm -hmm. in an activation of a battle. But you can shoot him like four times. <laughs> so it's like way better odds to just be shooting people with your longbows than it is to ever like hit someone in melee. And it's just like. And sometimes it's even like having your archery units leave cover so that they can be adjacent to an enemy unit feels very strange to yeah. me. I often engage in like prolonged flanking maneuvers with my archers. <laughs> I'm like, we have encircled their flank, sir, and now we are advancing into melee to shoot them with our bows. <laughs> it's the Legolas and it's technique, like, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, what is happening? And then, like, the penalty isn't, I think it's only minus one for being disordered on your shooting. Sometimes versus it's minus two. two in melee. Yeah. yeah, And it's like, it's just like, oh my god, archery is so good. And again, it, it gets more balanced, I think, as as the games progress. And then in Archibus, you have the interesting element of like, well, guns actually are that lethal. But And, and combined arms of, of having yeah. like, of having missile units and... Oh yeah, Archibus is wild actually for that, because you can walk up to people, shoot them in the face, and then shock them, which is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the later games I'm happy with, I'm really, Men of Iron, it's one of the things that annoys me the most about the, the first entry. Dude, fair enough. And you managed to keep it uh, under under uh, in around a minute and ten seconds. So I think it's uh, I think it's I, I appreciate the fact that you condensed uh, your frustration. So that's good. But before we go into the mini review for for each of you, I was wondering: Have any of you played other um, medieval uh, war games or systems? Just to on, on a scale of a battle to 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 compare, uh, maybe starting with you, Timothy. I'm trying to think now which uh, because I've certainly played sword. Uh, uh, what is it? Um, Hollenspiel's Sword and Shields. Yeah. Shields and swords. Or I think. Shields and swords. Um, but I had quickly moved on. To, it's just more interesting to me. To I really love the the ancients uh, version uh, with it or on it, and then. Um, Grass Crown. Uh, grass Crown. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but now I kind of want to return to, I think I have uh, House of Normandy. Mm. And 
I, I mean, M. Bell Holland is one of my favorite designers, and I think she comes up with amazing scenarios, even with sort of like what we were talking about earlier. Like, she she won't mince words when it's like this is a asymmetric uh, scenario, and one side is like you know on their uh, backed up and and likely to lose, but there will be special rules in the scenario that just make it so interesting that you still have that it still feels like there's some captivating decisions to make and, um, if, and now i kind of want to return to that um and that's what i was about to ask if you had to make a decision you had a box of men of iron and and one of uh, amabel's design you, which one would you pick then based on this experience oh that's tough um because there is something really nice about i mean i'm a sucker for how all the gboh look out on the map like even though or out on the table, rather. Um, I do think that even though I will never return to miniatures gaming, that was something that in uh, my youth kind of got me into gaming. And this is there is something very childlike that I enjoy about you know setting up all my setting up all my little men and then watching them smash into each other. And the Hollenspiel games are just lower count counter density. I mean, it's rarely ever more than you know. I think it's like fifteen counters on either side, something like that for most of them, and sometimes less. But just okay. as scenarios, I just think they're... More interesting. Know, without gushing, I think that they are works of art sometimes. Good. Uh, and I think I'm receiving a box of one of those games soon, right, Stuart? Yeah, Grass Crown. Nice, nice. Very, so very I'm look, looking forward to this. And, and for you, Pierre, uh, do you have point of comparison to other uh, uh, war games covering medieval battles and how do you feel that this the system compares? Um, no, I don't really. Uh, I, I love, yeah, I mean, I've got my master's in medieval uh, studies and I, I love the medieval period. And Men of Vine is what got me into wargaming. But in the medieval space, it's really been Levy and Campaign, Men of Vine and uh, Granada, Last Stand of the Moors, that sort of thing, rather than other battles. I really want to get into the Great Ethan Army um, that I think Stuart is going to get mm-hmm. more into uh, as okay. well. But yeah. And okay, yeah. Well, that's good to that's good to hear. So no point of comparison, I think. Yeah, and and used to work. Yeah. So I have Great Heathen Army, which is also as Amabel Holland's uh, Shields and Swords. It's I think more recent than House of Normandy, uh, and I really like it. I think like as a system, I like it more. It's a little bit simpler. I like the activation. I I kind of miss the the randomness of the continuity roles, but in that one, you kind of you have activation tokens you assign to wings. And you have a certain limited pool, so you can't necessarily assign them all to everyone. So it, it's an interesting kind of game in that regard. I think for me, anyway, this is probably more about the game itself than the system. But Great Heathen Army is, you know, it's Vikings in England. And I also have the expansion of Viking raids in Ireland. But there, there are battles we know less about mm-hmm. generally. So there's a lot more kind of guessing about how they unfolded. And it doesn't evoke quite the same historical excitement to me as because yeah. I'm a late medievalist as something like 15th century, 14th, 15th century does. I do like it more as a system. I think if if you were to say, like, if I had to keep only one of them, if I had, if I was only playing against someone else, I would play Shields and Swords, preferably, yeah. with a real opponent. I think it's, it's perfectly good as a solitaire system, but I think it's better as a... I have only played it solitaire. I really want to play it against someone because I feel like it feels more like a better game to play against an opponent. Versus if I was only to play solitaire, I would take Men of Iron's bigger scale and the kind of 
grander size of that. I think what I would have more fun watching those battles unfold as a solitaire player, uh, but would enjoy it a bit less playing only against another person. Okay, that's but that's interesting. So none of you have played like uh, a system like uh, Command and Colors Medieval, for example. Oh, I completely forgot about. I just haven't played the medieval uh, version. Yeah, um, it's on I've my, my a, shelf of shame. Plenty okay. of Command and Colors. <laughs> but but not the medieval one specifically, no. Timothy. You haven't played it. Okay, I think, and I think you mean Command and Colors Ancients. Late uh, <laughs> late, late Ancients. <laughs> late ancients. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we, there is a bit of a debate because the yeah the medieval Antiquity, ones yeah. starts yeah really early in the in the Middle is Ages. It, is it Justinian that it starts at? I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah with Belisarius and them. I mean, it's a cool period, in fairness, but I think it is. Yeah, and it, it makes yeah. the good transition towards from from ancient to to going into medieval, and the expansion is going to cover um, is going to cover it's Crusades. Yeah, the Crusades. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's gonna looking, really looking forward to that. It's going to be a bit more comparable. Uh, Actually. I, I do. I, I have played something uh, from Vevictus magazine. I've, I've played this a la charge, uh, a la charge, a bit a la charge, Au and fil de <laughs> a little bit of a field de but I don't own it. Okay. Uh, but most recently, Basilius II, uh, Battle of Manzikert, uh, especially. Mm. But Basilius II is a la charge, no? Yeah, th- I think that's a la charge. Yeah. I, yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, the system itself, but that's the one I I've played most recently. I think. Yeah. Now, Fred, you're going to tell us all about Cry Havoc now, right? Uh, I've never played Cry Havoc, uh, so I wouldn't be able to 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 say, but I did play A La Charge quite a bit. Uh, A La Charge was one of the first war games that I played. Not the first, but among the first one. And yeah, Basileus 2 is um, it's actually a, a game by Florent Coupeau, the head of uh, Nuts Publishing. Um, so so that's, uh, that's there's a fun game. connection here. Yeah. And uh, I think Alashar is a really cool system. It's a bit more old school in its um, in the flow of the game, yeah. Because it's a classical I go you go. Uh, you activate everything, and then the other the opponent activates everything. So you don't have that dynamic that you have in in the Man of Iron system. But on the other hand, it is more simple uh, in the sense that you don't have orientation. Like it's pretty straightforward. Uh, you have this really fun rule that if you want to have that charge benefit, you have to move in a straight line, which I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a lot of small stuff that makes it actually quite fun to play. It covers a wide range of scenario uh, from the thing that you would find in uh, uh, Commons and Color Medieval, so really early medieval era, to, to things that are uh, way later. So I think it's a it's a fun system. It's very small. It's very cheap. So that's actually pretty cool. But you don't have the level of maybe historical detail that you find in the Men of Iron series. It's uh, still but, really good. Yeah, yeah, it's still really good. I think it's a, I think it's a fun. Uh, it's a very fun game, and I would recommend it. It's it's cheap and it's totally worth it. Uh, and some of the some of the. The, the games in the system are, are just, just great fun to have and also easy to get new players uh, to wargaming because it's really easy to teach. So I think that's that's pretty cool. But I played a lot of Commands and Color Medieval. And I must say that for me, the more I played Man of Iron, the more I wanted to play Commands and Color Medieval. And I started to play it again because of, of having to play uh, Man of Iron. Because I think there is an instantaneity about the pleasure of, of a medieval battle when you're playing Commands and Color Medieval that I that I was missing while playing uh, Main of Iron. I felt that for fast, furious, stupid medieval warfare, it felt sometimes really tedious in the process. And I was like, that I don't feel like I'm actually fighting a medieval war. I feel like I'm like I'm I'm, I'm going through a, a like a, a very detailed process, whereas Command and color medievals is chaos. Like you just move and you just pray for the best, and you're and you see what's gonna happen, and it's 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 dumb Actually, fun. And I realize now that I played Battle War First Edition. Oh which yeah, kind of counts. 
Yeah, it doesn't count. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But uh, you know what? We should definitely play just comments and comedy or just a couple of scenarios that you see. Or maybe we should actually do a a live stream when the expansion comes out, just so so we can have maybe a point of of comparison and play maybe... I don't know what battles are going to be in there, but maybe a battle that is also in the, in the infidel box. That could mm-hmm. be a, a fun point of comparison. But just maybe for us to conclude, I would like each of you to have like this 30, 45 seconds mini review at the end uh, and, and, and give a rating. And, and you can rate in, in, I don't know, in number of crossbows or anything. Any rating system is okay. <laughs> uh, and let, let's start with you, Timothy. Okay. Uh, the short of it, I guess, is um, I would say that... As I've gotten more and more into historical gaming, I have had the tendency to zoom out and been more interested in zooming out and playing operational and strategic games. Um, And I am just really happy, actually, that uh, I had a reason to pull this back out. Um, And it's making me not only more interested in the period, but also just kind of sparked an enjoyment in, in, in tactical gaming for me again. Uh, and for that, I am really thankful. And, you know, I'm thinking about going in P500ing the other um, edition that's on there now, but I am thinking I've only played four scenarios yeah. in this <laughs> massive box. <laughs> that... <laughs> but you have like three years before yeah, that. You have three yeah. Years. yeah, exactly. You have that's time true. to play all of it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's my, I'm just, uh, I'm feeling very thankful. Yeah. Rating, Timothy. What's your rating? For oh, it? rating. Um, let's see. I would give it a three because that's the shock value of the uh counter. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good rating system. I I, I, I respect that. Uh, Pierre, what would be your review of uh, the Men of Iron system? Uh, as a system, it's great. The tri-pack is a really, really good value for money for the amount of game that you get um, for, for the money that you spend on it. Um, it's really fun. Uh, it's it's there, There's a bit of a buy-in that you have to have. You have to be interested in the period and the battles, I think. But once once you get into it, you can really sink your teeth into hundreds of hours of playtime. Uh, so yeah, maybe like five longbows. <laughs> which count twice more than, than crossbows so. yeah so it's uh, almost a 10 out of 10 yeah <laughs> exactly and used to words what's your what's your mini review so i really like man of iron i think particularly if you're interested in the middle ages and you're interested in kind of battles and tactical side of things it's there's a lot to recommend it it's a really interesting system i've had a lot of fun with it i also have a lot of nitpicks about it particularly with the first game i think the later games are better the original man of iron a couple of the battles I really like, but I think there's a lot that I don't like as much in there, which is disappointing for me because I like that period more than I like the other periods, mm. except for maybe Archibus. I do really like the Italian Wars. It's very interesting. Obviously, by the only measure that matters, this is the best game we've covered in the Club de Jou because it has crossbows <laughs> in spades. <laughs> yeah. So it's true. at least a 12 out of 10. Yeah. Uh, via uh, in comparison against other games that would include crossbows, the only metric that matters. I actually liked this game more after this month of playing it than I had before. I think because I went and I played all of the systems and got to explore them more, I my feelings towards Men of Iron actually improved over the month. And I think I'm most excited to play Archibus again. Uh, I think that's the one that's got me the most excited so I think I had it as a 7 out of 10, and I bumped it to an 8 
because I've I've liked a lot of what I played since then. Now that's nice to hear that actually through the club de jeu you changed a bit your perception of the game. That's nice. Good. I won't say much for my own review. Um, <laughs> I I think it's a really interesting system. I think by some aspect it is really smart and really sharp, and it does a lot with um, not too many rules. And in that sense, it's really like it's very respectful. Like I'm really respectful of the system. I think it's really cool. But for, if I have to do play a game on medieval warfare, either I want to struggle with uh, logistical problems and uh, living lords that want to go back home and stuff like this. <laughs> and I want to play the Libyan campaign series because I think it's just that much more fun and interesting. And if I have to play a specific battle, I think in the end, at the end of the day, I want to play something st stupid, fast and extremely fun. And I would go for comments and color medieval. So for me, it wasn't a big hit. I was happy to have the opportunity to play it. It was awesome actually to, to, to play it with the, with the two of you, uh, Pierre and Stuart, because it was actually, I enjoyed more spending that time with you and hearing you talk about the game than the game itself. Uh, but gaming is about this, is about spending time with people. So in that sense, I think uh, Men of Iron did a great job and gave me uh, awesome time. So that was great. But uh, yeah, if I had to pick a game, I would probably pick a different one. Uh, so that's it for me. I would I would still give it a, a 6.5 out of 10. That's what, what That's what I would give it. But it was super fun uh, debriefing with all of you. Uh, maybe just a quick mention to say that uh, the this month's uh, Club de Jeu game is um, supply lines of the American Civil War. So Amabel Holland's design American Revolution. that we, American that we Revolution. mentioned earlier on in this uh, in this podcast. So so inter interesting coincidence uh, in a way. Uh, and we'll debrief this uh, next month, I guess. Early thoughts on on this game uh, in 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 a few seconds. Um, maybe starting with you, Timothy. Oh, on uh, supply lines. Yeah. Um, I think supply lines is a great example of how something that is at an operational scale can feel very tactical. I guess I'll enhance that next month. <laughs> Good. Great to hear. Uh, and and you, Pierre? Uh, have you started I playing it? it? I haven't oh. played it. I am. I am. I have the rules, and I'm going to look into it. But I don't have an opinion on it yet. Good. And you, Stuart? I have it set up. I've read the rules a couple times. It looks like it looks simple, but probably like it's going to be more complicated than it reads. But it looks very cool. So but, I'm excited. But, I'm excited to try it. The system is is pretty simple. The implications of <laughs> of the rules are a bit more complex, mm -hmm. which is actually yeah. quite interesting. So this I, I, I quite like about it. Uh, but even with simple rules, and I hadn't played it in a really long time, uh, when we played with uh, Adam uh, the other day, we made quite a few mistakes while playing it. So I would be keen on, on playing it maybe another couple of times uh, before the end of the month. But I was really happy that it got picked up. I think it's a really interesting design. And as we had as Le Club de Jeu game, uh, Washington's War, I think it's going to be an interesting point of comparison because they are covering the same conflict uh, and they also I think both of them share some sort of similarity of having some aspects of abstract game design in them so yeah something to 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 think about anyway it was awesome having uh, the three of you thanks again for making the time uh, and providing insightful comments about men of iron that was awesome uh, and this concludes this month's podcast of uh, homo Ludens monthly debrief for the months of September 2022. Thank you for listening and see you next month.